people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. is a prostitute, the princess of Hollywood Boulevard. Ooh, thirsty. Well, you said 25, sweetheart. What's the extra for? What well, they set your toes. Ramrod is the psychopath pimp on her tail. You're dead, you hear me? You're dead. You're dead, bitch. And Walsh is the vice cop who must keep them apart. Look at her, princess. Listen to her. Listen to her real good. Ramrod did that to her. He beat the shit out of her. Their worlds collide in a bloody battle for control of the streets. The glamorous and glittering facade. <laughs> and the grim reality behind it. Find you, bitch. Vice Squad. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Brad Jones. Hey, how's it going? Our request month continues with one from listener and Patreon donor Dallas Norvell. Yes, we are looking at Gary Sherman's 1982 film Vice Squad. The film stars season, is it Hubley or Hubley? I always said Hubley. Same. I've heard it. I actually, in prep preparation for this podcast, I heard, I watched a, a little video review of it, and the guy said Hubley, but I was like, I don't like that. I'm saying Hubley. I've always heard Hubley as well. Yeah. Sticking to my guns. She's a devoted mom by day and a working girl by night who works hard for the money, so you better treat her right. She gets into all kinds of hijinks over one crazy night on the Sunset Strip. We're going to be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have seen the movie. We will still be here. Heather, when was the first time you saw Vice Squad and what did you think? Vice Squad was a movie, before I went when I first saw it, that I was like infamous. Anybody, as soon as you get into cult movies, you know, as a kid, you start reading. It doesn't take too long before you start hearing some of the more infamous films mentioned where somebody's, oh shit, have you seen this movie? This is for real, real. and I could be Water Power, or it could be Vice Squad. Actually, I saw Water Power first, spoiler. But when I saw Vice Squad, it did not disappoint what I wasn't prepared for was how, because a lot of times you'll read reviews of it and everybody's like, oh, it's sleazy and it's exploitation. And it, it, it is sleazy. It's appropriately sleazy. It's fittingly sleazy. But it's a really well-made movie. And it's one that you can just rewatch and watch and never, it never gets dull. 
It's got great performances. It's got a great soundtrack. It's got Wings Hauser as a countryfied pimp. Hello. Singing the theme song. This movie's a gift. Also, Cheryl Rainbow Smith is in it for two seconds. Some of those Rocky horror freaks are in here, too. Oh, yes. Life's pretty cheap for that type. Brad, how about yourself? I remember seeing this among my parents. My parents saw this in the theater. They'd also taped it off of cable, too, in their VHSs, the taped off of HBO VHSs. I remember always seeing that title written down on one of the tapes. But when I actually saw it for the first time, I was young and... We had the HBO Cinemax package, so you'd have those guides that would tell you, like, how much sex was in a movie. And this is the, you know what era I'm talking about here. The the parents are asleep, blah, 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 and I'm, like, planning my night around, what are we making a bikini business out of tonight? So I see that one of the movies listed has that, I believe it was the SC logo, or G, something like that suggested it would be a naughty movie but the movie was vice squad and really quickly you pick up on i don't think anyone's making a car wash company in this movie (laughs) but that being said i got into this movie i was like whoa talk about a villain and a half and it is just an odyssey of a movie the plot and the situation is great in and of itself especially for how tight it is taking place all in one night But it really is just like you're a fly on the wall through this very specific time in Hollywood, in in L.A., amongst these characters that they can be on the screen for a very small amount of time. They can more or less be like a glorified extra. But this movie is so good at giving them a story. You feel like someone could just be there in the background or be sitting in the police station and you feel like this is a person who exists in real life even the main actors they look authentic whether you're a cop or a hooker it's it's not glamorized it's got a real grittiness to it so much so that this movie stuck with me for a very long time to the point to where half of the movies in my filmography are like total ripoffs of this film (laughs) I have played a killer pimp so many times in so many movies, and there's a lot of hookers in them, too. I owe so much to my love for this movie. How is your cowboy shirt game? That I couldn't pull off. So when I would play a killer pimp in something, I typically wasn't the cowboy thing. That's I'm like... That's uniquely Wings Hauser. It's one of the many original things about this film is that on paper, when you see the synopsis and you look at a character like Ramrod, the character you might picture in your head would maybe be something like the killer pimp from Magnum Force or something like that. But for Wings Hauser to play this big Elvis fan, very imposing country type, I'm like, that's really original and really makes the character stick out. First of all, I remember that guide so well because I too was a little deviant that was studying and I believe it was strong sexual content. That's it. Yeah. And G- GV and GL, graphic violence and graphic language. And to this day, there's still certain films if I see them pop up on Letterboxd, I'm like, oh, that was one of those. That's. Uh, I'm so glad I don't remember any math or science. <laughs> But no, I love that point about Wings, especially because he's not 
actually Southern, but he seems authentic. The wrong he has, it would be such a hee-haw, it'd be just like a bad hee-haw kind of experience. But he totally does have this greasy, like, Southern charm about him for being a California boy. Like, he pulls it off. We'll go more into his decor later, because I definitely want to hear about your experience with this film, Mike. I had to mention that, because he is ramrod in this. I came to this one very late. I remember things like Hollywood Vice Squad or Angel, which have ties to this movie as well. But really, when it came to Vice Squad itself, I didn't know the movie. And had Dallas not requested it, I probably never really would have watched this one. Because I have to say that the Shout Factory box cover art for this one is really off-putting. They have a real strong track record of putting out some of the worst cover art I've ever seen in my life to the point where I have now started a Tumblr of bad cover art from them. Road games where it looks like Jamie Lee Curtis's arm is seven feet long or they live where Roddy Piper has like a 18 pack for his abdominal muscles. It's disgusting what they're getting away with when it comes, because these are great discs that they're putting out, but the cover is just horrendous. The OG poster is fine. You don't have to do new art. Road games especially. I remember Road Games, the VHS art for that being a work of art. That one was great. They live is fine. Yeah, the cover, and I have that Blu-ray, and yeah, that's that's one where I think the sleeve is reversible, and I immediately... <laughs> was like but unfortunately i have the slip cover which uh, you can it is what it is that's why those slip covers go right into the recycle bin for me and that cover that you're talking about it's funny you mention it too because it's that's also the image that they have for it if you pop the movie up on on vod so my wife had never seen this movie before and i'm just like oh you're one of my favorites you're in for a treat so we watched it the last weekend and she saw that cover before watching the movie. She's going, what the hell? I'm like, it's darker than this cover. Let's on. <laughs> it's not this big glam musical like the poster suggests. <laughs> the cover is covered in neon slime. <laughs> it does totally. Is this can't stop the music with the killer sound? <laughs> what is this? No, just and the original poster, I think it's just like a gritty black and white close-up of his face. It's simple, but it's effective. Wings Hauser has a fa- has those face, that face. Just put his face on it. You're good. Not. It looks like he's got googly. I don't know. There's a lot of problems with that. I need a link to that Tumblr, though. They were really knocking it out of the park for a long time with some really bad covers. So, no, the original poster is definitely him looming very large and then i believe it's season up close or princess of like her smaller kind of him looming over her though it's a good cover and definitely one of those where thank goodness it's reversible it's a lot it's a lot that says happy birthday to me that deep oh. that's a whole other do you remember that wow oh man. god play the hits woof the shits <laughs> But speaking of his, we alluded to it. We have to glory in that theme song. The theme song is just amazing. And 
he being Wing Souser, he's just giving it his all with these vocals, man. I just, I wish I was there during the recording session. Yeah, because I can't even tell it's him. No. Even outside of the accent he uses for Ramrod, even just seeing him in other movies. I forget when it was that I found out that was him. It might have been like an old movie guy, because I feel like I've known that for a long time. I certainly didn't the first time I saw it, because again, it doesn't sound like him. But I think one of the movie reviews you were talking about earlier, where the golden video guy that gives it one star and just calls it sleazy, even that review was like, does have a kicking theme by Kings by Wings. (laughs) (laughs) It cannot be denied. Yeah. (laughs) Even Roger Ebert's thumbs down but i that is a banger i'm sure he said banger so that's what they said 1982 100% and the lyrics it's got just this sturm and drong of just complete rock and roll filth i please tell me brad whenever you like were getting in the headspace to play a killer pimp did you put on the song did it help you channel your inner pimp it did in another movie like the the killer I played in that particular movie was, like, almost too depressed to be listening to that song. <laughs> so he was probably listening to, like, soft rock of the time or something. Oh, but God. That's really the, sleazy. But there was a, the second... See, the, that one was the one where it was the 80s. And then the other time where I did, and I got to be way more over-the-top and flamboyant than, I think, even, like, the dialogue referenced Neon Slime. The spirit pulled me to look up the lyricist for this. And because I was so hoping it was Wings, <laughs> but it wasn't. But it's this guy named Simon Stokes. This dude, and this is all from IMDb, so your mod is going to vary. But reportedly in the early 70s, he was very popular with bikers. So he maybe he knew about the neon slime. And also he did films that would, or songs that would appear on soundtracks for films ranging from Poltergeist 3. My Mom's a Werewolf, which I love, that movie. That's the root of my John Saxon love, because I saw that as a kid. <laughs> that was my first John Saxon movie. Tammy the T-Rex, Bad Channels, did a number of stuff that was on Full Moon. And Under the Rainbow. Oh, wow. That, which, that was like the outlier. Because I think there's even like some penthouse video that has like everything he has. has a, there's at least like a boob in most of the stuff his stuff is on. And then there's Under the Rainbow. <laughs> I do seem to remember Carrie Fisher getting down to her, her undies in that one. I haven't seen it. I was hoping you were going to tell me there was like Munchkin nudity or something. I was going to say, there's got to be like naked dwarf tossing in that movie. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've seen it. And it's one that I keep every time We Hate Movies has like their request month. I always put in for that one because I'm like, more people need to know about this movie. Yeah, nobody talks about it. It's, it's weird, but. I think the only thing intro of this movie's missing is Naked Dwarf Tossing. It really does have everything in that opening. Like it's like a it's like the better version of the opening credits to Jason Takes Manhattan. <laughs> Where like you're just there's this, you know, rock and song playing really just sets with the time and place of the movie you're about to see. It has ooh, there is a lot of criminal activity going on in that thirty second sequence. It feels like it's all made out of stolen shots because there are parts later on where I'm like, oh, that looks like that same leather daddy from the opening. 
and other parts. I don't think we ever come back to the Rocky Horror Kids, but I'm just like, it really does set the stage very well. And does it better than Jason Takes Manhattan did? Because in that movie, I'm sure, like you said, like the circumstances were probably the same and how it was edited. But in Jason Takes Manhattan, you can tell this is just B footage of later scenes before they call action. But you really do get like the gamut of the local color. And it just it really ranges from like the fun, like, yeah, the Rocky Horror Kids and here's some drag queens and the world's most tranquil leather daddies. I love that they do pop up later. Those are the sleepiest looking leathermen I have ever seen. They had too much animal. I've seen Born to Raise Hell. And there were some guys that had too much animal in that and they were not sleeping. Okay, there, there's a homeless guy with a cat on his shoulder getting harassed by the There's like sex workers and then there's what looks like it's a quick shot, but it's so messed up. Where it looks like, are these two grownups like selling a kid? Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. And you're there's, like, there's child trafficking going on. Legit child trafficking. And you're like, what the fuck? I love that movie's not even letting you catch a breath. They're like, bam. Just like balls to the wall, like literally from the intro and the neon slime. Oh, now I've got the Jason Takes Man. <laughs> That's <laughs> I really love that song too. It kind of is my favorite part of Jason Takes Manhattan. All the angst. Do you guys feel like Ramrod is singing this? It's not just that it's Wings Hauser, but it totally feels like this is. That's the thing. Like to jump all the way to the end of the movie after Ramrod is dispatched and then the song comes back up on the soundtrack. It's is Ramrod really dead or does the spirit of Ramrod still live? Because bringing him back for bringing the song back at the end, it really does feel like he's not been vanquished. And like all of this shit that we just saw from the one, one crazy night type of stuff, it's just going to happen again the next night. And whether it's Ramrod or whether it's some other Yahoo that comes in and gets his name plastered across the back of his pickup truck or whatever. There's just always going to be another ramrod there to vanquish, basically. I kind of halfway expected. That's one, and I don't think it, this movie's pretty damn perfect. This but, movie's bulletproof. Yeah, but I did, but it does make you, like, wonder what's there going to be a shot, even if it's just, like, another kind of pimp just, like, perusing the streets with a steely-eyed gaze and a little sleazy grin or something. It follows Terminator rules and the sequel Ramrod is now like the good guy. There's some killer pimp chasing <laughs> chasing princess's son. Come with me if you want to live, darling. I, if this gets crowdfunded, I will give some money to that, but only if we get wings. It does make you too wonder, and I do like this about it, that you can imagine if that really is what Ramrod's personality is. Or if it, or if he's not this southern guy, if he is a guy from California who just adopted this personality, took on this fake accent, he has all of these posters up of Elvis. So clearly, whether he's southern or not, he's taken a lot of influence there from that. I like that, that they, it leaves that mystery open a bit for the character. I like that we just have the little bits of sunlight in this movie. Like after we set the tone with the opening and the great song and this montage, this kind of verite montage of all of these street scenes, 
And then we get introduced to Princess. We get introduced to Susan Hubley, and we get to see her and her little girl, and then we get to hear some of the worst ADR of a little girl that I've ever heard in my life. I love it. It's so great that it's just so not her doing these lines. And she's sending her little girl away with, I'm guessing, a friend of the family or housekeeper or something. How far are they going? She literally drops him off at the bus station. I wonder that, too, because there's not really but I that about the movie in a way that it doesn't stay too long with the kid, because I feel like a lesser film would have made the kid, God forbid, even part of the plot where it's like Ramrod kidnaps the child or some horse shit like that. I like that they did this to Kenny. This kid isn't a Kenny. We see her for two minutes. She's out. Sweet. I do like it that she apparently has that princess has a good enough relationship with her mom to send the kid to. Because you kind of wonder about her background. But she seems to be very put together when it's like the daylight hours. She seems very professional. And I imagine she really maintains a great persona and just does not let anything slip as far as what she does maybe every night or maybe she goes out once a month and just collects enough money that keeps her comfortable. I'm not exactly sure her situation is. She is an independent worker, doesn't have a pimp. Did you guys read the screenplay for this? There's two pages of vocabulary terms at the beginning of it, which is fantastic. And so they're going through all these things that aren't even in the movie, but like all this stuff about chicken hawks and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, was that supposed to be in there at some point? But anyway, she is like this professional. She drops off the kid, and I'm glad that it's at the bus station because the bus station becomes this important kind of nexus as far as it's where all the young girls come, the Hollywood bus station. If they're, it's that old line about the, all the girls that come in on the bus and then what becomes of them, and here's princess and she's starts her journey at that bus station and starts off with her whole night and it's interesting how we are following her and then once she gets she ends up getting picked up by a john and who's very into golden showers and then once that happens she disappears from the movie for a little while but it's nice that we have her set up and we know her well enough that actually miss her while we get to know the other characters. We get to know Ramrod. We get to know all these folks. And it's this whole thing too of like her also having to save her friend Ginger because she gets a call from Ginger. There is that moment where she's still at home or princess is at home. She gets this call from Ginger. So it's like that nighttime world infringing on her daytime world. Going back to the golden showers customer. It's not the same actor, but that guy straight up looks like, Dr. Pretorius from Beyond, who coincidentally looks like a total pee freak. We're talking he's got a tarp room. He's not just, like, we'll go to the bathtub. This guy's, oh, I, don't worry. The furniture's covered. What? Like, like, dedicated. Not judging. It looks like Dexter's kill room in there. Here's what happened with us when that scene came on. And same with something that happened later. Like the guy mentioned he wanted golden showers. And then when princess is with her friends, her other hooker friends, again, another scene that feels very real, authentically, yeah. like their interaction with each other is very natural, like everyone else in the movie. So princess says, doesn't anyone want straight sex anymore? 
And my wife goes, my wife laughed and goes, I don't know. This seems like an easy night. My wife is going, all she's got to do is just pee on someone. She's like, all right. <laughs> hundred bucks. Now, I was honestly, I thought the same thing. I'm like, okay, she gets a foot guy. She apparently spanks some dudes. That's it, man. You don't take your panties off. I get right. <laughs> Clean as a daisy. I thought the same thing. I was like, man, hundred bucks. She just got to drink a six pack and pee on him a little. That's easy. And he looks like Dr. Pretorius. It could be him. If you've seen from beyond, because that guy was a, he was a little freaky dinky. It's a, it's, a, it's a very sleazy movie. That guy might be the nicest man in this movie. I love the weird pee guy. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> he, he, he was her nicest John of the night. There was the other guy who like, took her money back because there wasn't hook or yelp reviews at the time oh that guy was so gross oh he was all flop sweat flop sweat and toupee energy i didn't move your ass bitch move your ass i'm just like oh boy yeah okay dude <laughs> this is a real cool guy should have caught her on the first half of the shift it was interesting seeing nina blackwood in this as ginger because i had never seen her with this little makeup on her face before because when she was nina blackwood the vj she just always had a real mask going on when it came to her makeup and like also had like really that raspy voice i seem to remember her being pretty famous for but in this totally different voice for me and really different look she had going on she's almost unrecognizable she is it's still even though like i've seen the movie multiple times now and i know it's her Every single time I watched it, I'm like, oh, holy shit, that's Nina Blackwood. I'm the same way. And if a lot of years go by, they'll even be that thought. Wait, which is it Martha Quinn in this one? Or okay, it's Nina Blackwood. Poor Ginger, though. God, that, that scene with Ramrod with his pimp, st- <laughs> his pimp stick, which anybody listening, yeah, go see the movie. If you haven't seen it already. But if you haven't, it's basically a wire hanger that he has configured into a stick-like formation is that accurate do you guys feel like that's an oh yeah that's 100 percent what it is i'm all actually surprised that he doesn't put it over an open flame to make it even worse just that he beats her with this and then violates her with this as well oh just terrible it's rough but the brilliant thing about this movie is that enough to be like holy shit that's messed up but it's almost at times it's almost like texas chainsaw where what you know isn't matching what you actually see you see enough to know and you hear enough definitely to know but it's not you're not seeing every little grisly detail which i'm sure nina blackwood when she was in mtvj was grateful for that <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, just him like, we're going to go to school. Like the way he talks, like his, oh, like it's school time. And call, I was like, oh, you're not going to be giving my money maker out for free. Ugh. It really is one of the most underrated villains of the 80s. It's one of my favorite villains of the 80s. And he is that charismatic in it. <laughs> He's scary. He's intimidating. And he is this machine. And his fits of violence in it are... They're raw and they're fast. Like when they're when the cops and Princess and him are in the apartment and he just headbutts the cop, not with his own head, but with her head. And it's quick. It's really fast. 
And but then there's also those parts like when he is outside the door of Nina Blackwood's room and even later when Princess first goes up to him in the bar where, yeah, you could tell that this is not a good guy. But if you're somebody who is that you can manipulate really easily like he can, he has the charisma to do that while you can still see that this is a a monster who is saying these lines. When he starts laying on the sweet talk outside of the door, oh, hey, honey, and just gets it. He does what I have heard abusers do before, where you can just turn that charm on. And he's super charming when he wants to be. When Ramrod wants to be nice, he can be very nice. You're right. He's like a snake when it comes to the violence and just striking out without any sort of warning whatsoever. It makes him perfect casting for it, too, because that's like Wingshauser all over. He's a great villain, definitely. But and also be like the cop hero in a movie and just switch it like that and do a great job. The follow up that they did that Sandy Howard produced after this Deadly Force. It's not nearly as good of a movie as this, but Wingshauser is great at it. And kind of watching those back to back Deadly Force was made right afterwards. You see how quickly, how versatile he is as an actor, that very quickly between these two movies shot practically back to back, that he can be that scary, but also a very charming lead in this detective movie that he did a year after. One thing I noticed, and it's such a little detail, but when he's talking to Princess, like when he first meets her, he does this move where he puts two of his fingers near her mouth. And it, lo- it almost looks like he's about to do the mandible claw for anybody that's a wrestling fan. Well, he puts his fingers in her mouth, doesn't he? Yeah, like he's, but it looks like he's doing, like you guys can see that nobody can see this listening, but yeah, it's, uh, but he starts like to bend them, like he's about to do, go full McFoley mankind on her into the <laughs> which I was like, it made, made me laugh, but it's, but that's such a brilliant acting choice because he's even giving these little already even when he's trying to be a smoothie trying to give these little hints of yeah so this is a heavy dude the red flags all over but he is charming like he can you can be like wait did he's he is charming did he just put his fingers in my mouth he could probably convince me he didn't and really the third part of this stool is gary swanson as tom walsh the cop and I like that he starts off, he's a real asshole when we first meet him, and the way that he motivates, let's say, Princess, is to to take her and pretty much shove her right down into the dead face of Ginger later on. Oh my god, and it's horrific, but that's like his way of getting through to her to be like, listen, this is really serious, and it isn't just like your friend's dead, he just rips back the sheet and shoves her head right down there against her dead friend's face. But we do get moments later on where it's, oh, he's actually a good guy, but he just doesn't know how to, doesn't know how to deal with women very well, but also doesn't know how to deal with princess. But he, I think he gives a great performance as well. He's phenomenal in this. And like all the other characters in it, he feels authentic. He looks like a cop, and he looks like a cop who's been doing this for a while and has been in that scene for a while. That's where you can take a guy who, yeah, later on we see he's not a bad guy at all. He does have empathy, and because of that, for that scene with Princess, yeah, it's rough, but you can put yourself in his headspace a little bit. 
having watched Ginger, not only watch Ginger die like he did, and knowing to what Ramrod did do, or, and then picturing that Ramrod will clearly do that to somebody else again, you can put yourself in that headspace a little bit and figure, yeah, it's not unrealistic someone would snap like that a little bit. And he is coming from a good place by saying, this killer is out there. He's going to do this again. I need your help in any way that I'm going to get your help. I have such an appreciation for his performance after watching the movie multiple times. Because I have to, the first time I watched it, I was, you know, I thought he was good, but I was almost a little underwhelmed. But I think when you rewatch it, you realize part of that is because he's sandwiched between Wings and Season Hubley. And Season is so good here. She... She had a, a very respectable career. I know she's been retired from acting for several years now, but she should have been bigger. She's so good here. But yeah, rewatching it, I'm like, no, this guy's great. He was going crazy or doing like he has a bigger energy that's not quite, but it's a different kind of energy. And he does have like a vulnerability. There's something like there's times where he just like you see a lot of pain in his eyes, just that kind of look that you see people. Who like like you said, Brad, like people that have had those jobs, who have seen just jobs for years and they just years and years of just seeing just the worst of humanity. That's it's gonna do a number on your psyche, no doubt. And you see why then you do understand, yeah, he's desperate. Yeah, don't shove people in the face the corpse face is up but get it, because it's just how many how many people, sadly as he's probably seen that refuse to say anything because they were afraid of retribution from pimps and abusers like Ramrod. You get it. She has a great point, too. She says to him when they are arguing at first, she says, this isn't a jail. This is a hotel with a revolving door because she's just afraid if she does anything against Ramrod, he's just going to be out within five minutes anyway. And her friend later on, I'm not sure if it's Blue Chip. I think it's Blue Chip. One of the other prostitutes says that she got picked up because we see her picked up, but then we see her back out on the street. And this is all one night. And she's, Oh, I got out within an hour because I don't remember if it was her or if she's got a pimp or what it is, but she posted bail and got out within an hour. And princess is afraid that Ramrod's going to do the exact same thing and then come after her. And I think it's pretty bad that she throws it in his face that she's just like, Oh, motherfucker, they got you now. And I'm just like, Oh, don't do that. Don't antagonize him. <laughs> you know? That was the definition of poking the bear. <laughs> I will admit that the first time I saw this movie, I thought that scene came way later than it does. Cause it's really more of the first act transition to the second act is when Walsh talks her into setting Ramrod up and, they arrest him and really after that like that's when the movie kicks into high gear that's quite a great way to end your first act oh 100 percent. by the way i have to mention one of my favorite pieces of dialogue that was at the police station where two prostitutes are arguing with the cop because he, he calls them whores as we're not whores we're prostitutes and he's like what's the difference and the blonde one who is cheryl rainbow smith who i love so much who's been in so many great things lamora revenge of the cheerleaders just gosh she's amazing r.i.p but says whores give it away stupid and so she says it to the cop 
cracks me up. I'm not doing it justice, but it's just. <laughs> I love the guy, the two, the I am a pimp. And that's how the scene starts. <laughs> it's like Grandel Bush, too, isn't it? The dialogue is so good. The dialogue is so good. The actors sell it, even with those lines that you just said, just from a couple hookers who were in the police station to the pimp who is yelling that line. The girls all sitting around and talking and have good chemistry to the point to where my wife says to Blue Chip goes, she's the Samantha of the group. And... and it's and that's a great thing too because you need to just dialogue that is that good that original and that snappy for this movie that is taking place in a very short period of time and because of that not only do we in just a couple of scenes really feel the dynamic with the hookers but also walsh's whole team as well they're also great together and within seconds you pick on what their dynamic is with each other. It is like it's almost seeds to the group from Miami Vice, like Zito and all of them. It is remarkable how we get so tight with these people that we barely see. But we, to your point, we know their personalities. Pepe Serna as Pete Mendez, fucking awesome. And then Beverly Todd as Louise Williams. She's a force of nature in the way she keeps her gun next to her thigh and her partner who's there, like, put the pressure on that one pimp and just that whole scene. And I love that scene when the other two pimps stand up and the one's, like, about to talk tough to them. Oh. And she just corrects him and he sits down and then they're, like, grousing about it after that. And she says, which I think it's one of the best lines of dialogue ever written. Blink your eyes, motherfucker, and you die in the dark. People could only dream of writing a line that good. Oh, shit. I also love the scene later on where her and her partner are roughing up the guy that sold, that sells Ramrod uh, another vehicle. Roscoe. She's almost toying with him. That's a good boy. Good, Roscoe. (laughs) (laughs) She is phenomenal. That's the... And that's one of the things, because like when I think of films that get compared to it, or maybe been that, what makes this film so solid is every element is so good. There's no, there's no fat to be trimmed. Everything is just lean and like it should be. It is a unique setting too, because yeah, there is L.A. set sleaze flicks of the time, but by and large, most of them are like. The Exterminator, they're around like 42nd Street, Times Square. And that's cool. I love those movies too. This being like Hollywood Boulevard and everything, that does, among several other things, also help it really stand out amongst a lot of other sleaze flicks of the time. There's a shot in this film I love so much that actually makes me... And I wouldn't compare the films otherwise. They're two very different films, obviously, but... The shot where Princess is looking in the store display of dolls, and it totally makes me think of Joe Spinell and Maniac. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a different. It's just, and it's, I don't think there's a, an actual correlation. It's just something like my brain is like, oh, it makes me think of another movie I love. With Maniac, it makes total sense. It makes sense that these those two movies could be in the same universe with each other. And it's such a beautifully, like the composition is, is such a beautifully done shot. That's the other thing is that like the 
everything from like the editing to the cinematography is so good. This is really like this film is just a gift. And we even we don't see it. I love that we get a shrimper. Her one <laughs> that guy is I love he reminds me of Max Wright a little bit for some reason. <laughs> I totally can see that. Thank you. I agree. I, I don't remember what my joke was, but I know I made a Max Wright joke when my wife and I were watching it the other day. <laughs> oh, you've been a bad boy. <laughs> Uh, it's just like i'll go wash my feet and he's oh no that won't be necessary that that won't be necessary uh, alf typically keeps the place too dirty when i come home <laughs> yeah there's the alf reap nobody wants <laughs> or may- maybe they deserve it <laughs> it would be very popular for me the moment of her that there's the scene with the dolls that you mentioned. There's a scene later on with the stuffed animals as well. And she buys that bunny for her daughter. But the scene that always gets me is after the guy in the wheelchair sees her, like we don't see the beginning of all that. We don't see any part of that scene. We just see the end. We see him thanking her. And apparently he's driven up from some other location. And after he leaves, we stay on her and she closes the hotel room door and we just get her face and we just see so much going on with her face as far as what am I doing? What is this? This guy needs the help. She's doing a service. We'll always say sex work is real work. She's doing the real work for so many people and she's helping out a lot of people like the the guy from ALF. Of course he needs, you know, he wants to suck some toes. Okay, that's great. So the other guy needs to be peed on. Okay, that's terrific. But helping this poor paraplegic guy out, it's that's terrific. Thank you so much for doing that. And I just really love that emotion that's on her face after that. And really, she's in that moment also has no idea how much her life is in danger. She has no idea that Ramrod has escaped. And that's the other thing we're talking about, the cinematography and all this kind of stuff. The editing of this movie is great, too, because you just get to see all of the different action playing out on all these different fields and occasionally they cross and then other times they are right next to each other and they don't even know it you know these parallel actions are happening like the way that she leaves the little rinky dink motel that she's at and goes with the chauffeur you think that the chauffeur is ramrod because we know he's out looking for he comes in the chauffeur comes in and then she goes off on her kind of belle du jour type adventure and then when we catch back up with that hotel we get to see how ramrod has come in and just beat the shit out of everybody so glad you mentioned the paraplegic scene something that is really cool about this movie that i don't think you see a lot in films is that only are the sex workers portrayed very organically Again, it's like both of you mentioned the authenticity, but also I kind of love it that of all of her Johns, like the ones that are very kink or, well, paraplegic, we don't know. In 1982, I think a viewer probably would have maybe been like, put that on a kink, even though it's not necessarily kink, obviously. But but all of the ones that are not quote unquote straight vanilla sex are all like really nice. The, old, the Richard means a little weird, but he's fine. 
he's just eccentric, which is what we call crazy rich people. When you're poor and, and crazy, you're just crazy in this country. <laughs> but it, they're all really, and like the guy, the paraplegic, you're right, Mike. It is something sweet. And actually, it made me think I've ever seen a documentary about this one service. I think it was in Canada where uh, there was a madam and she specifically had her girls work with people that were disabled, adults who were disabled because it's, she's that's a service. People are human. We all have biology. And just because you may look different on the outside doesn't mean you don't have those urges or need that touch. So it's kind of, yeah, it's a touching. It is a touching scene. It's really handled really tastefully. All of the really outrageous stuff is handled bizarre. I would say bizarrely tastefully just because you wouldn't expect a movie that has all of this, (laughs) all of these topics coming up to be that. But it, it is. Exactly. It humanizes all of them. Like in those little scenes, they are given enough dimensions to be these like little three dimensional characters. And it also makes those parts. It gives it a fly on the wall feeling to them, too. Like we're seeing like what it maybe this type of thing doesn't happen every night, but enough to where more often than not, they're not really acting shocked by anything that happens with the exception of the old guy in the coffin. But I love that scene because it's handled so well because in a lesser movie, a lot of these scenes could come across as random and just randomly placed in the movie, but they're really not in this. It is all part of this kind of world building that is going on here, that it is like this less than zero trek through a lot of these different situations. But with that guy in the coffin, it's great because I always wonder what the end game was. You'll hear later on in the interview with Gary Sherman, he talks about how the guy in, I don't know if this is based on, because Gary actually went out and rode with the vice squad and was like an unofficial police officer. You'll hear more of those details, but he was saying that the old guy wanted to be a zombie and that was his thing oh, he wants to get up. I'm like, really? I never would have picked up on that, but because it is interrupted too early, but he's really a dick. Just the, not Gary, but the old guy. Because the way that he immediately, when she screams, he just is like, oh, you ruined it, you slut. And he just starts calling her slut. Get this slut out of here. And I'm like, you're a real piece of shit, mister. This lady, like, you scared the shit out of her. No wonder. But I guess maybe that's his kink is to scare people as well. I'm like, what the hell, man? What do you expect to have happen? Oh, the chauffeur liked her, though. The chauffeur, a.k.a. the manager of the hotel from Ghostbusters. Fifty dollars <laughs> for around the world. I had no idea it'd be so much. I'm not paying it. I love the chauffeur. I love that he caught the bouquet. That little touch where she storms out and she tosses the wedding bouquet and he catches it. I'm like, oh, that's so sweet. (laughs) Just so many good little touches in this movie, man. It's not surprising at all. You just said where he rode around with the Vice Squad and really did his homework. You can tell it's that kind of movie. It's, It's like cruising in that regard where they're using very... Another one of my favorites. They're using very specific terms like all the definitions they use in cruising and this film terms like outlaw and it's using it organic to the conversation to where it's yeah okay they really spent their time in this scene to make this feel pretty damn accurate i was really afraid the first time we meet 
the African-American police officer who wants to do the fake Jamaican accent. He's like, all right, so golden shower is when a guy likes to get pissed on. Ooh. And he just like tries to do a few terms and stuff. I'm just like, I hope this guy goes away soon. And luckily he does. Doing these sting operations so many nights, like that makes sense to me. Like where one just to help his own boredom maybe would be like, you know what? I'm going to try out an accent the next next time I go up to a girl. I could 100% see myself doing that. I don't know if I try Jamaican, but... So apparently around the world is the entire body and half is oral and normal sex. They even have things like lamp leaner, a hooker leaning against a lamppost. I think that happens so many times they need a term for it. I love stuff like that. It's like finding out this isn't in this film, but that rodeo groupies are buckle bunnies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I love shit like that. Finding things like everything you wanted to know about sex, but were afraid to ask when I was a kid and just being able to read like all the terminology and stuff. I'm like, Oh, uh, this is a thing. Okay. I see you were open-minded. Unlike our, Jama- our faux Jamaican. It was, ew. And it's like, it's okay, calm down. It's just a little. <laughs> He's got a tarp. Don't yuck somebody's yum, dude. I'm surprised that Ramrod was able to tear up that hotel lobby, by the way, because that old Chinese guy seems to really know his business. I love Mr. Wong. He's so good. Can we just give it up for me? I know. I, that would have been, that probably would have taken, it was smart that they didn't have Mr. Wong fight Ramrod. But I love him fighting the cops. He's full on fighting cops. If Trey Parker did this movie, he totally would have fought Ramrod at some point. (laughs) Ramrod would have farted in his hand and threw it in front of somebody's nose. I know. But my favorite is the smile on Mr. Wong's face when he's being handcuffed. Like, he, no shame. He doesn't care. He's going to be, like, going to court and shit. (laughs) It's worth it. I totally fucked him up. He feels like somebody is being taken to an episode of Night Court. I love that the one partner, the guys who accidentally let Ramrod go because Ramrod crashed their car, kicked the one guy in the face, damaged the other guy. And I love that the guy's got that huge appliance on his face. And when they're fighting the old Chinese guy, the one guy who's healthier ducks and he punches him right in the face. I love, oh, God. Yeah, actually, that scene where Ramrod escapes, the way that Wings Hauser throws up his legs to wrap around the throat of the guy that's driving, like, holy, you know, I'm like, that's how you know. It's like the, like you mentioned earlier, the, the whole, like, using Season Hubley's head to head fights. God damn. And the chair, the just, the, the, the bar stool chair thing that he has right there. He will use anything as a weapon. <laughs> and he, he just hit Season Hubley's stunt person so hard in the head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Also, I love, love when we do see, like, early in the film, when he goes to his pad, that he's playing, like, old-timey country music. Ever, I've, I feel like old-timey country music, when you have a character listening to it, it's always inherently so good when they're, like, creepy. It's like that scene in Eaten Alive where you got Neville Brand. 
playing creep it's ooh, of course he's listening to some country music or even the theme song the hitchhike to hell which is another great theme song it just instantly for me is oh god we're about to see something fucked up you got the old high lonesome like in on the radio it's gonna get bad some like hitchhiker is gonna get picked up and never be seen again <laughs> I love all the Elvis memorabilia all over the place and that you're like, oh, how much does he model himself after Elvis? There's probably, I like think there's a deleted scene where somebody like, oh, makes fun of Elvis. He just like, his eyes start switching and he just ends up fucking them up. Like he breaks both orbital bones. (laughs) Say that again, motherfucker. I'd fuck Elvis. But he's the only man I'd kiss on the mouth. The Elvis swag was legit and just, and you know, he's like intent to hurt her when he's like, those posters are flying off the wall. Mm. Oh yeah. When he's fucking up his own Elvis stuff, he's on not give a shit mode. I really like that. The second act of this movie is so much him trying to track her down and we get not only is he trying to track her down, but he has to get all of his equipment too. the way that he goes and gets the knife and then he takes the knife and he gets the car and then he takes that and he goes over and he gets the gun from the guy with the great tattoo all over his head at the leather daddy bar. And then after that, it's like, okay. Now who was her former pimp? It's Fred rerun Barry from what's happening. So let's go see this sugar pimp here, Mr. Joe Dorsey. And, and that eventually ties back in after he cuts the guy's nuts off and then we get a call later on which then tips off walsh as to what's happening pun intended but just (laughs) the whole thing of he has to do this and then meanwhile it's like the cops are finding out some stuff and they're trying to follow each one of these leads obviously you talked about how roscoe gets picked up but then it like jumps to sugar pimp and it's hey i think this is part of your case and then that really tips him off to the next part really smart and just that it's not this laborist now he has to deal with a bunch of quests in a video game or something they have to have this and have to have this it's no he just knows what he needs and he's able to get it and he's able to switch vehicles when he needs to and meanwhile he's driving along in that piece of shit blue ford and the cops with the lights are passing him by and he's just driving along they are completely not looking for that vehicle, not looking for him at that place. And so he is getting away scot-free. Yeah, you could use the streets for good and evil in the film. Both of them know how to do that. The cops all know how know who to talk to a certain extent. He knows what weapons to get. He knows how to stay hidden, hidden in plain sight at least long enough to try to do his mission which is to kill this woman it's like the meticulousness that he does this it's almost like a reflexive motion if, yeah this is the first time ramrod's done this except now he's gonna get caught but it makes you wonder how many times has he been through okay gotta get another car gotta okay get this weapon it, it it's effortless 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 there we go effortless <laughs> that that it's like, God, if you think about it, it's, wow, that's the thing. This film gives you so much to chew on mentally where it's, man, this is so heavy, but it it's done so smoothly. It isn't just like beating you over the head with it. It's not an after school special. And it's smooth how Ramrod is with the guns too and how he is with the knife to where it's, it's 
another that's another reason it's great wings hauser is there because when you watch it you go he knows how to use weapons you can tell he's handled that same year not the same year the year after he uncommon valor came out that he wrote like one of the scripts for that movie so it's yeah he knows you can tell watching this this is a guy who is who has shot weapons before in real life when he finally finds her near the end of the film he's practically drooling looking at her and there again we have that nice confluence of events where it's him looking at princess and then her two friends come up and see her and they're like oh we better tell her about ramrod and they try to make it over to her and that's when he just rams pun intended again rams his truck down and like just takes that one girl out it is terrible and we've already seen him attack one of the other girls as well and the way that he just throws her body out into the trash i mean it's a little on the nose but at the same time it's exactly what he thinks about women that he just beats the shit out of this poor girl and then throws her into a trash pile yeah it is it is easy to pick up on the symbolism there like you said but also it works because that's what that guy would do there's a lot of trash around that area he's gonna throw her out of the car it isn't it's not out of character or outside that world that would happen and then she tries to get help in the way that the car passes her by honking its horn and just leaves her there on the side of the road yeah poor coco i have to say now that i wish you would have mentioned that your wife was like blue chip is the samantha because now my brain is like wait is coco is she miranda wait <laughs> Do you think when uh, Princess gets home, she like writes everything up? When is it going to stop being about World War Three and start being about World War Me? Oh, that is, is oh. not what I was expecting from the Carrie Diaries. No, <laughs> holy shit! Yeah, I, yeah, she's she's using all that hooker money for shoes, all these Jimmy shoes and melodics. I'm paying my way through college. You're doing shoes. These are going to increase in value. This is an investment. As long as I never wear them. Actually, she could probably up her value on the toe freak market. Get those Tootsies and some Louis Vuittons. Does that increase the price if you're wearing nicer shoes? And I know like toe cleavage definitely is a big attraction for these guys. So you got to wear the open toes. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I was reading Cinema Speculation, the Tarantino book. So, Okay. Thanks, Mike. I need a Tums. I need a Tums now. Ugh. This, this is coming from this water power over here. <laughs> that's one video of mine that's not on YouTube anymore. I wonder why. You tried to explain to YouTube. Somebody's bitches need cleaned and they're just like not having it. He takes Princess to what looks like a warehouse, like a torture warehouse. It's, oh my, it's so beautifully done, like the mirrors. When he sees that scratch on his face that she's given him and he smashes the mirror that you didn't know was a mirror. I know, because you're thinking, like, oh shit, is this going to be in 3D where he's... <laughs> <laughs> it is 1982. And he already has that stuff set up too. Not even knowing that this is where his night's going to lead. That's just a room that's just been there for a while. And when all those cops bust in and they're busting in from... Every single window and door that you can possibly imagine. It's like a scene from Shaft or I'm going to get you sucker or something. 
And then he takes the one window that isn't guarded and just yeets right in, right out of there. Yeah. <laughs> he oh. studied this building. He knew he could jump out of there and then live and land on something. And I don't even know if he would care if he just, like, I have to get away from these cops and just whatever. I'm out of here. And that we have the whole, the way that Walsh is the one that dispatches him because I feel bad that it isn't princess dispatching him, but she is just completely fucked up at that moment. I really wish she had been the one to pull the trigger at least one of the two times. And I'm so glad he shoots him a second time. God, I know. And that's the thing is like that stark physical contrast because season Hubley is so tiny. And so it makes it like when you see her messing her up even more just harrowing because it's she's got the fighting spirit. But Wingshauser, I think in real life is like, what, 6'2"? He's a big dude. And like that makes it I like that in this because that like he can easily just throw her around like a throw pillow, which he does several times in the movie that makes him even scarier. She's so little, it just, it's, oh God, is she going to survive this? Because as soon as she sees that pimp stick, she emits this just blood curdling scream because she knows what's about to happen. Like you said, Brad, like, it looks like this is his place to take the girls that he's not happy with because it's the nice pad is that's where you first take them. Where it's, hey, baby, look at my nice Elvis. This is not even Vegas Elvis, this is black leather Elvis. I always thought it was so weird and because you we were like, we had that whole thing in like the, it seems like the late 90s and early 2000s where pimp became, oh yeah, so-and-so's a pimp and it's, it became a very positive thing. But I think for any of us as little like ourselves that were watching a lot of movies on cable that we were too young for, but watching this, especially stuff from the 70s where even like the good pimps are still like, there's still that grit and realism where you're like, this isn't, and they are chaotic good at best. In a movie, there's not really going to be like a pimp where you're like, I love him. What a sweetheart. <laughs> like, if it is, it's a really zany comedy. It's like Night Shift or something like that, where it's like Dr. Detroit. It's a wacky screwball comedy. <laughs> I can't believe we did that, Mike. We did. I was on an episode of Mercury. I was on a Dr. Detroit episode. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Which also stars Coco. And she was specializing in prostitute roles. Oh my god, Coco. I love Coco. Oh. And then she was also in Cannibal Run 2 as Beautiful Girl. So probably didn't have a lot of lines. But Beautiful Girl, not Beautiful Girl number three. At least. <laughs> See, that's a, I love the optimism. I like the denouement when we have daylight again and getting what has happened with the cops and then also with princess and how he brings her the bunny. And I'm very glad that she yells at him that it's got blood all over it. That was hilarious. <laughs> Walsh, it's got blood on it. But really more than the neon slime, I kept thinking that we we're going to get a little bit of Joel Walsh in the city coming up on the soundtrack right here. <laughs> it was, I, was, I was thinking Mr. Sandman. <laughs> there you go. Oh God. <laughs> I can't with the in the city. <laughs> Holy shit. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong that they wouldn't go great at the end of this movie. You prostitutes are good. The best. Uh, 
We needed David Patrick Kelly as one of the weird, as one of the Johns. God, what would he be into? <laughs> Probably in those Coke, Coke bottle bottles, man. I imagine. The Leather Daddies could have been the L.A. branch of his game. <gasps> <laughs> they have quicker and easier accesses to the gym than the. That swing ain't just for fisting. <laughs> it's for fisticuffs. <laughs> I hate myself. <laughs> So I think we should go ahead and take a break and we'll be back with a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from director Gary Sherman. And after that, we'll hear from Steve Mitchell, who is working on a documentary about Wingshauser, working class actor. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Classicy is a film journey to the East, a curated streaming service offering the best of contemporary and classic cinema from Eastern Europe and Asia. Using coupon code Mike50, you can get Classicy membership for just $5.50 a month, giving you the opportunity to sample award-winning films, documentaries, silent masterpieces, classic comedies and more. You could also get access to the Classicy Journal, exclusive cast and director interviews, video essays and watch lists. Visit klassiki.online and sign up now to start your adventure in film. How did you get this job? When we finished Dead and Buried, the studio, which was Avco Embassy, Bob Ramey was the president at the time, who was also the president of the Academy at the time. We were having a lot of problems with the production company that had done Dead and Buried. The production company, which was Aspen Productions, was sold right after we finished the director's cut undead and buried and the new company coming in which was pso was run by mark damon and mark damon wanted to change everything about dead and buried and we got into a whole battle and they wanted to make all these changes and i refused to make the changes and jake Cantor, who had been my mentor throughout my career said to me step away and he actually called bob ramey and said to Bob, because they were friends, said to Bob, get Gary in another picture right away. One, over this battle that you're having with PSO. Bob called me into his office and said, I love Dead and Buried just the way you delivered it. And whatever happens with it, I'm going to fight for your side, but we'll see what happens. Because it was a negative pickup. It wasn't an ownership situation from AFCO Embassy. And and they only had the United States, or U.S. and Canada. And PSO, when they came in and bought the production company, bought world rights outside of U.S. and Canada. And so Mark Damon was thinking more about his foreign sales than the U.S., and he didn't want to have two different movies. So it was a lot. It was He had his reasons, but I don't agree with any of them, but... He just thought the movie was too intelligent and wouldn't work for foreign audiences, and which I think he was wrong. But and in, in the end, they made all those changes in Dead and Buried, and then they went back to my version anyways. Ninety-eight percent, they added a couple of things, and which I actually shot for them because Jay said to me, "Just shoot it and move on to your next picture and be thinking about your next movie." 
And so anyways, I walk into Ramey's office, Bob's office, and he sticks a pile of scripts on the desk. And he says, here, pick one. So I take this pile of scripts home to read over the weekend. My girlfriend, um, at the time she and I were cohabiting, <laughs> living in sin, she was an executive at Warner Brothers, and so that's what she used to do every night was bring home a pile of scripts. She was a story person, a development person at Warner's. We would sit and exchange scripts all the time. So I'm reading through this pile of scripts. I read by Squad, and I thought, I don't like the script, but I love the concept. So anyway, she, she said, did you pick one? I said, yeah, I have this one, and I handed it to her. And she hands me a script. She says, I just read this. I think you'll like this one, which happened to be nine and a half weeks. She hands me nine and a half weeks. I hand her Vice Squad. So if I read nine and a half weeks, she reads Vice Squad. She says to me, this is the worst script I've ever read. I said, I don't like the script. I like the concept. She says, no, you should do something better than this. And I said to her, I said, I can make this movie work. I love the fact that it takes place in one night. I said, what I've always really wanted to do is do a film in real time. And I said, this is as close to real time. There's no reason for dissolves. We can start this film out and after the first 10 minutes. We can keep the audience on the edge of their seat for an hour and a half. And I said, exactly what I want this picture to be is like 90 minutes, give or take. And... It can't go longer than that. By the time I finished talking to her, she said, I think you're right. And I said, you should make nine and a half weeks, which she didn't end up doing because the studio didn't want to do it. It ended up going to Paramount and, and got made there. Anyways, I went in and talked to Bob and I said, you know what? The only problem is that this is a police procedural and I don't have any background in police work. I said, one of the co-writers of the script is a commander at LAPD, and supposedly this, all this stuff happened to him, not all in one night, but over a period of time, he, all of this stuff is real and based on fact, and why don't you go talk to him? So I did, and he said, I really like your movies and your television stuff, and he said, I've seen a lot of stuff. And I was really hoping you were really going to do this. And I said, yeah, but somebody's got to teach me about police work. And I don't And he said, how about you go to the academy for a few weeks? I'll put you through an accelerated course and whatever you need to do, you can do. And in the meantime, you can ride as a second man in a two-man car and actually find out what Vice Squad's all about. And he says, and my top guy... His name was Doug Nelson. He said, my top guy, his partner is on maternity leave, and it happens to be his wife. <laughs> the two of them were partners. They fell in love. They got married. We kept them together. They're the, my best undercover team that I have. I said, okay. So for the next six weeks, I was in the academy during the daytime and rode his second man in a two-man car with Doug. And... Boy, did I learn the streets. We would pick people up and question them, and I would question them right along with Doug. One night, Doug brought me into Hollywood Station, and they all thought I was one of them. 
And it was a really interesting time. I worked with Robert, Vincent O'Neill, on it. We would sit down every night. And I basically, I just took over and did pretty much a page one rewrite on the script. And there were some things that Sandy Howard wanted to keep in the script. And I just figured we could keep them in there and I'll shoot them and then I won't put them in the cut. And Bob Ramey said to me, this is the Gary Sherman film. I am 100% behind you on this film. And whatever you want, you just come to me. I am the president of the studio and this is an AFCO embassy production. Unlike Dead and Buried, which I didn't have control over. This film I have total control over. Basically, I, I put my whole crew together and I used people that brought John Alcott over from London to shoot it. Johnny and I had worked together many times on commercials and we, and we were social friends. And so here I had Stanley Kubrick, cinematographer. And Johnny had always said to me, bring me over to L.A. to do something low budget. He says, I get tired of doing these huge mammoth movies. And he said, I'd love to do. So I called him and I said, you want to do something really down and dirty on the streets of Hollywood? He says, send me a ticket. <laughs> and which was great. John Alcott is someone I absolutely adored and loved as a human being. And he and his wife, Sue, were like, became great close friends. And, and it was unbelievable. And he's one of the greatest cinematographers who ever lived. Just making a movie with him was such a treat. We didn't have a budget. Here we are shooting exterior nights on the Hollywood streets. And we would actually look for streets where there were, there was enough available light that all we had to do was fill. And, Mainly, he shot with what we called back then Lowell lights, which were just little tiny lights. We had a lot of them. We would just hide lights everywhere. On a couple of the big scenes, we did have Moscow light, which is a huge arc lamp that you put up on a crane. But we didn't have the money to use that a lot. And we had to really pick our shots to do that. And then, of course, one scene, <laughs> the wedding scene. I said to John, okay, no, we're not bringing a generator. He said, what are you talking about we're not bringing a generator? I said, you're lighting the whole scene with candles like you did on Barry Lyndon. And he said, fuck you. I said, no. <laughs> he said, I really would like to do it. And he said, okay. <laughs> we're going to need a lot of candles. I said, we'll get it. And I had a candle wrangler and, <laughs> and that whole scene where Susan comes out and down the stairs dressed as a bride and goes into the funeral parlor is all lit with candles. There's no electric light in that scene. So it really is was a tribute to Johnny and, and to Stanley, <laughs> Mr. Kubrick. I had a great time on Vice Boy because by the time we finished the script, we had a great story, great characters. And I was really able to, again, is because we've talked about poltergeist, technology is like my love and camera moves and lenses. And in that film, we actually shot it. We shot tests before we started. And uh, Fuji had a new stock 
high-speed stock that had just beautiful texture to it. The grain quality of it, even pushing it, was fantastic. And they were ecstatic about John Alcott shooting a film on Fuji. So they basically gave us the footage. They gave us quite a break on the film just to have John Alcott shoots on their new stock. And that was money that we could spend on something else. And so the stuff was just beautiful. It was just a beautiful stock. We had a little problem at the beginning with it, and they replaced some stuff because it was so new. They just, there was a bit of, unstableness in the emulsion layers, but we got through that. We just kept testing and we got what we wanted and made a beautiful film. The problem at this point, what is it, 40 years later, is that the prints, there's not a decent print of Vice Squad anywhere. They all turned pink. And, but the negative was good and, and we've scanned we we did a 4K scan of the negative, and the Blu-ray that exists now is absolutely perfect. So you can actually see Vice Squad the way it was supposed to look on the Blu-ray. Hopefully, I think when the Screen Factory Blu-ray, when their license runs out, I can't remember when that's going to be. I'm hoping that whoever picks it up after them and I'm hoping it's going to be Blue Underground because nobody does it like Bill Lustig. They rescan the negative, and we have we know where the negative is and it's stored. So it would be great to get Bill to do an updated. You hear me, Bill? I was curious with that funeral scene. Is that an homage at all to Belle du Jour? Because there's a very similar scene in that one, and it's another movie about a prostitute. Not really, because this was something that actually took place. There was a guy who lived near Hollywood where there's a bunch of mansions and this old guy, and he, that's what he used to do is send his chauffeur out to, to pick up girls and bring them back to his house. The chauffeur would dress them up in bridal clothes, and then they'd just walk in, and this freak would pop out of a coffin, scare the shit out of them, and then do other things. <laughs> but that was that was for real. Were you ever in any danger out there on these ride-alongs? On the ride-alongs, yes. And when we were shooting, not have one night, not one, when we were out on location in Hollywood and East LA and downtown, we did not have one night where Shooting was not interrupted by real police activity coming through the set where we were shooting. Gunshots fired. There were car chase that came through that almost killed one of our people. It was unbelievable. And then we'd always have to stop shooting because the helicopters and the searchlights were always coming past us. And they knew to stay away from us because we had... Arrangement with the police department. I mean, we had LAPD on set with us every night. And I was doing my ride alongs in LA. I was never in as much danger as when I did my ride alongs in Chicago after I did Vice Squad because I had a status as a reserve officer so I could do ride alongs whenever I wanted. 
So I would do it for research when... I'll tell you, the most dangerous thing about Vice Squad, I almost got killed on Vice Squad just because of negligence on the part of some of the crew. The shot where you see the elevator coming down the shaft, where's that shot? I had told him to take the elevator down all the way to the basement, and we were up on the third floor of a six-story building, and that's where we were going to set the camera. We were on the fourth floor because the elevator was supposed to come to the third floor, and they were just those chain-link doors on those elevators. And so John Anneman, the camera operator, and I were up on the fourth floor just to take a look and get set up. And so the elevator shaft was black as coal, and we said to them, okay, put the lights on. And they said, and somebody said, shouts out, lights are on. I said, we don't see shit. And they said, no, the lights are on. And I said, it's black as coal down there. The lights can't be on. They said, we're moving the elevator. And suddenly I realized they had the elevator up on six, and the elevator was coming down. And John and I were hanging over the gate, like from chest up. And I suddenly realized there's an elevator coming down at us. And I look up and I see this thing just literally inches away. John had really long hair. I grabbed John by his hair and pulled him. He hit his head on the bottom of the elevator and knocked him unconscious. I threw us backwards. We were on a six-step ladder. I grabbed onto him. He was totally unconscious. He was dead weight. We fell off the ladder backwards onto my back, knocked me out. He was unconscious. They had to call 911. We were seconds away from being decapitated. Fired the person in charge on the sp- Actually, Brian Frankish did, my producer. And then my girlfriend, who, oh, from, <laughs> who was at Warner Brothers, had just shown up on the set. She used to come to the set every night at after she left the studio, because we only shot at night on Vice Foot. And <laughs> God, everybody was crazy. But getting back to what, what else was dangerous, back then, when you shot a car chase, you actually had to shoot the car chase. There was no CGI. There was no nothing. You wanted it to look like a real car chase. You shot a real car chase. So we're on the camera truck. And and we had camera cars and camera trucks and different vehicles to carry the camera or actually mount the camera on. But even when the camera was mounted on the car, we were linked together because there was no way to see it. We had some degree of video assist then, but basically you had to have an eye in the camera in order to see what was going on. We had kind of video assist, and sometimes you'd use video assist, but it didn't broadcast. You were hardwired to it. So no matter where you were, you had to be, and you're in a vehicle going as fast as the cars are being chased. We're going through the streets of downtown Los Angeles at 70, 80 miles an hour, and I'm on a goddamn camera car strapped to a camera car. I mean, and we were turning corners and it was an e-ticket ride. If you remember when Disneyland had e-ticket rides, <laughs> that was a fucking e-ticket ride, man. 
It was fun. Making movies is fun. If you don't have fun making movies, then don't make movies because it's too hard to make them. If you're not having fun, it ain't worth it. How was the movie received when it came out? It was a hit. It got, we got a, we got great reviews. The first review I saw was in Time Magazine. And Time Magazine said, Vice Squad, State of the R. And it was just a rave review. And then Vincent Canby wrote a review that was just unbelievable. Actually, they can't remember. Did the Time Magazine article come out first or in the New York Times? But anyway, I remember it was a Sunday morning and my phone rang about five o'clock in the morning. And it's a friend of mine in New York and said, Do you see the, the art and leisure section of the New York Times today? I said, It's five o'clock in the morning. He said, Oh, it's eight here. <laughs> I got up and there was my paper on the night. He said, do you get the New York Times? I said, I'll have to go to the newsstand and get it. So I got up, got dressed, went to the newsstand by Laurel Canyon. I was living in Toluca Lake then. Went to the newsstand, got a New York Times, came back. My girlfriend and I start going through it, and boom. And there is this rave review from Vincent Canby. I, it was another moment that if I would have died right then, I'd die with a smile. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. The one thing we didn't get on Bicewood was a namby-pamby review. People either loved it or hated it. There was nothing in between. People were either adamant that it was the greatest or adamant that it was the fucking worst. <laughs> to and I was in the process of when Squad got released, I was... Talking to John Milius at a movie he wanted me, he wanted to produce and he wanted me to direct. He was a giant fan of Vice Squad, as was Martin Scorsese and Steve Spielberg and everybody, all that whole group, Lucas, and they were all big Vice Squad fans. And so Milius called me and said, I want you to come in. And I came in, he had this club room at Paramount where he would just. They gave him an office there, and he, 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 people would come in and hang out. So he started having me hang out. And he had a script that he had me read and said, do you want to do this? I said, yeah, I'll do this script. And then Don Steele was running Paramount at the time. And Don Steele was showing Vice Squad. And she said, I not only wouldn't hire this person, I wouldn't even want to meet him. He's such a misogynist. And... Scorsese, who loved the film and understood what the film was about, it was against violence against women. It wasn't pro-violence, and there was no excess violence. For it. When somebody hit somebody, I wanted it to leave a mark. When somebody shot somebody, I wanted to see how painful it was. I really went for that in Vice Squad. I didn't want... Like in a James Bond film, people shoot, people hit people, and people just fall and go, oh, I'm dead. I didn't want that. I wanted to see the result of violence. I wanted to see the result of violence against women. I wanted to feel the emotion that a woman feels when she's perpetrated, that someone perpetrates violence on her. And I just 
pulled the blinders off on that movie and just went for it. And it was because I abhor violence and I abhor violence against women. Don didn't even want to meet with me. Eventually, Scorsese, who, you know, was dating her at the time, <laughs> they got into a very public argument about it. Well, wow. um, they were at a dinner and they started talking about what picture should be up for Oscars. And, and Mr. Scorsese said, the picture that deserves best picture this year, they won't even nominate because they don't have the balls to nominate it. And she said, what picture is that? And he says, Vice Squad. And she just exploded and said, that piece of shit doesn't deserve that. Anyways, over a period of time, Dawn was talked into seeing the film again, and she ended up loving it and actually tried to make a movie with me before she passed away. But unfortunately, the project that she wanted to do, we couldn't separate from a studio that already owned her. Yeah, Bicequad was very well received, but I just took off for a while. It seems like a very intense movie to make. It was more intense for Wings than it was for me. I quite enjoyed making the movie, and I had, as I said, I had the president of the studio 100% behind me, so that made it quite pleasant. I knew that this picture wasn't going to get taken away from me, as had happened and dead and buried. Wings is weird. Wings really wanted to do the picture. I knew Wings before Vice Squad. He was married to Nancy Locke, and Nancy Locke, of course, was in Dead and Buried. So Wings was up in Mendocino quite a bit with his wife while we were shooting Dead and Buried. Nancy plays the mother of the two, of the little boy that goes into the haunted house in Dead and Buried. Wings at the time was a big soap opera star and a role on the young and the restless and this part that he played on the young and the restless was like the world's nicest person but i knew wings and i knew that there was a lot of pain going on inside there that his life had not been easy and we used to sit and drink and which i don't do anymore <laughs> and uh, and, and so we both played guitar and we sang, so we would sit sometimes and we'd get really drunk and we'd sit and play guitar and sing together and we'd talk. And we really opened up to each other and I've had a little bit of past as well. I don't really talk about <laughs> But I knew that there was this pain inside of wings that I could get to. And so when I was writing by Squad, when I was putting it together, I would sit with Wings and we would do table reads together. He really fell in love with the character Ramrod, and I knew that I could get it out of him. When the studio said to me, who do you want to cast as Ramrod? And I said, Wings Hauser. They said, are you out of your fucking mind? One of the women that, on the board, and said, oh, executives, said, he's Greg Foster. He's the nicest man in the world. How can you think of casting him as... And I said, I know what wings can do. And so they said, no. And I said, can I bring him in to read for you guys? And he said, yeah. So Bob Ramey and all the executives and Frank Capra Jr. and everybody else, Blossom Con and all the executives at an AFCO embassy are in this room. And Wings and I rehearsed what we were going to do. And so we had it, we rehearsed it, we had it down pat. 
And so I'm with them, and they said, can I bring wings in now? And I said, yeah, and I bring wings in, open the door. He just stands there with this look on his face. That was fucking frightening. And he just looks around around. He said, I understand that there's somebody here that thinks that I am not mean enough to be able to play this part. He's looking around, and then he zeroes in on Ramey. And he walks across the room. Ramey's sitting there behind the table with his arms on the table, and Wings leans into him and grabs him by the tie and pulls him face to face, just stares him right in the face and says, you think I ain't mean enough to be fucking ramrod? Bob Ramey just goes, okay, <laughs> I'm convinced. <laughs> and Wings became Ramrod. But Wings had a hard time <clears throat> working Ramrod against his real life. And he said to me, if I do this part, you got to take me. He said, we're going to work all night and I'm going to be Ramrod. He says, in the morning when we wrap, you're going to take me for breakfast or a drink or something. And you're going to sit and talk to me until I'm wings again and not ramrod because I don't want to go home to my wife and kids as ramrod. And we did. I mean, we'd wrap at 4.35 o'clock in the morning when the sun started coming up. And as we couldn't shoot once, it was light outside, except one, 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 one day that was light. And... And I used to have to talk to him until he could, felt that he went home. I wouldn't get home till 7 o'clock in the morning because <laughs> I had to calm Wings down every morning. And subsequently, Wings, started, Wings did two more villain parts after Vice Squad. And then he decided he didn't ever want to play a villain again. And it was hard for him. And he's angry at me. He said to me, I ruined his career. I said, I gave you the best part you ever played, and I gave you the direction you ever had as an actor. And he said, I don't care. And he hasn't done any publicity. He did it at the beginning. But with the Blu-ray release, with the VHS releases, with the DVD releases, he didn't want to have anything to do with him. He's not in any of the extras on those or anything. So, I mean, Caesar even called him and said, Wings, why aren't you doing this? And he said, because Gary ruined my life. Caesar and I still talk to. I love her. She's just a fantastic human being. She doesn't act anymore, but she just takes care of animals, rescues animals, lives up in the Northeast. She had just done Hardcore, and I saw an early screening of hardcore and that's when i decided i wanted season of vice squad she's still beautiful and she's very happy and in love and hiding out there <laughs> kurt tried to ruin her life but he wasn't successful <laughs> she had to fight for custody she was in the middle of a divorce and she was getting sued for custody, and they were saying she wasn't a fit mother because she was more interested in her career than her kid, so she gave up her career for her son. And, you know, and by the time that was all over, and it's hard for a woman in this business. You hit a certain age, and you go from being an ingenue to being a young mother, 
and there's not a lot of starring roles for young mothers. It's a very sexist business, our business, as much as they're trying to come above that today, it still is. But a lot of women executives getting their say today, which is really great. <laughs> I spent most of my career dating women executives. <laughs> <laughs> I love smart, powerful women. That's always been my thing. And I really respect women. And really, a, one of the things about Squad that really upset me is how many people felt that Squad was misogynistic. Because I made Squad for exactly the opposite reason. I made Squad take a look at violence in women and see how awful it is. See how horrible it is to exploit women. And for men to take advantage of women's weaknesses to exploit them, I just find to be horrific. And that's really what I wanted to demonstrate in Vice Squad. In the same way, I think we talked earlier about the violence and how I abhor violence and why I strive to make violence as ugly as possible in my films. I don't make it exciting. I don't go bang, you're dead. I go bang, you're ripped apart, you're bleeding, you're in pain. A bullet doesn't just pass through you and go, okay, boom, they see the X's across the eyes. Tears your body apart. It breaks bones. It's extremely painful to have a bullet pass through you and what it does to you and the trauma that it does to your body. It's horrible. It's not exciting. It's not it's horrible. It's what I want to demonstrate when I do a violent film. I have a lot of love for those women that I put through what we put them through in that film. And I wanted to show how ugly it is. I don't think there's anything titillating about Vice Squad. When Ramrod beats up Susan at the end and he ties her up to that bed and she's covered in blood and her nose is bleeding. She's got blood coming out of her mouth. She's got bruises on her. And the way we lit it and the way that we did her makeup was making it as ugly as absolutely possible. It wasn't there to be at all arousing. It was there to say, in this awful. And a lot of people got that and a lot of people didn't. I got letters from high school principals and and faculty advisors and people like that from the Midwest saying, thank you for making this film. It helps us show these girls why they shouldn't get on a Greyhound bus and go to Hollywood. And we've lost a lot of girls to that. There were educators in the Midwest at the time using Vice Squad as <laughs> reefer madness. <laughs> so Vice Squad was being used like reefer madness. <laughs> Cautionary tale. <laughs> yeah, to keep kids from getting on Greyhound buses and going to Hollywood, which was bittersweet. But I'm proud of the film. It's one of my favorites, and it's my movie. There's a couple of scenes that we did to placate Sandy Howard, because he'd written the scenes and he wanted them in there, but I squeezed them in so that they just are there and they're gone. <laughs> but you got to give everybody a little bit. But I just thank 
and I will never stop thanking Bob Remy for uh, being there for me and helping me make Vice Squad into the film that I wanted it to be. Can you tell me how Fred rerun Barry got into the film? I knew he was available. He was looking for work at the time, and I thought that he'd be great as that character, and he loved it. It wasn't easy for gay people to sometimes get the roles that they wanted to get. It was 1980. weren't too woke then, and so I thought, why not cast somebody gay as somebody gay? And uh, I thought he was great. He did a great job. And uh, it was just a little cameo and uh, gave us a little marquee value. He hadn't done anything in quite a long time, but hadn't done much. So in, in one way, we were trying to give him a little boost to his career, although passed away. I don't remember what year he passed away, but he... I think it was 2003. So it was a while after. Yeah, um, but again, did not have a huge career afterwards. No, which was too bad because he was a very talented young man. And I think there was a certain amount of prejudices at the time. But we have lots of those problems in our business. You definitely like a moving camera. Oh, I definitely like a moving camera. On Vice Squad, we did some great shots. You have to have a great dolly grip. Jimmy Dyer on Vice Squad, as I remember, who was just amazing, had Jimmy on several movies. And he was just tops. And <clears throat> try to remember who else. But Colin had operated. David Cadwallader was the... Dolly Grip on Deathline, who was like one of the best in England. He now works for Marvel. He supervises all of their fancy shots. So I picked good. <laughs> we were all children back then. Uh, I was less of a child when I did Vice Squad, but I was still pretty young. I was in my early 30s when I did Vice Squad. There's one particular shot with... I think it's wings driving and the way that the camera kind of moves around the entire car. That's a remarkable shot. We did lots of stuff. The thing is, when we were doing car to car shots back then, you had to have your eye in the camera because there was no other way to see what you were shooting. My favorite shot in Vice Squad is when Season and Wings come into Ramrod's apartment. People have said to me, that's one of the best edited scenes we've ever seen. It's not edited. It's all one shot. From the time they come in to the time that we're in the close-up of wings starting to seduce her or her seduce wings, it's all one shot. The camera just flows. Johnny and I came into that set and we're looking at it. I said to him, we could really do this in one shot and just the camera just moves in, moves out, moves back, moves along. As long as we figure out what it is that we're following so that the camera never decides its camera movement on its own. And so season became the target 
and the camera just lingers on season from the time she comes in to the time that Ramrod makes the drinks, comes over, gives her a drink, and lays down next to her. But it's all focused on season. So you're always seeing her expressions, her feelings about what's going on, and you feel the tension in the scene through that shot. And I didn't want to interrupt that tension with cuts. We leave the guys in the car across the street listening and then just go and just stay with season until that moment that Ramrod starts talking to her and then it cuts to Walsh in the car listening the wire. And uh, I just love that shot. <laughs> it's one of my favorite moments in the whole film. Having John Alcott to light that shot. You think about the jigsaw puzzle of the whole thing. The two, two guys in the stairway. The two in the basement. In the car. The Walsh and down in the car listening to the wire. And Rick getting ready to give the command. The lighting between all of those shots in the lobby, the stairway, the basement, and the interior of the car outside, there's a blending. Don't They don't interrupt each other. When you cut from one to the other, and Ramrod's apartment, we had total control over how we were going to light it. And it was nighttime, so no lights coming in through the windows. And so you had total control. We designed the apartment to work with our direction to design the apartment. I thought they did a great job on, on that. It was so ramrod. <laughs> You're writing a poem. And so every word is important. Yeah. And so that was that sequence. And then, of course, leading up to <laughs> Make My Day, <laughs> which one year later was stolen by Clint Eastwood. I really appreciate how, talking about all those spaces, you always feel like you know where you're at, especially with the chase of Ramrod later on, that you have all of these different cars in pursuit, and you feel it where they are in relation to him. That's such a skill to have. I shoot a film before I get on the set. Everything's storyboarded. Uh, I was thinking somewhere in this, my office, so somewhere in this room, although in the middle of reorganizing it all, so I don't know where everything is, is my script of Vice Squad, which what I used to do is you have this script on one page and then a blank page on the other side. The script's on one side with my notes for words. On the other side, I'd draw pictures of what the scene's going to look like. And I even do maps of where the camera's going to be and how the camera's going to move. And I have all that written out on the opposite page so that when I'm sitting there with my script, I basically can see the whole visual of the movie. I can watch the movie by turning the pages of the script. And that's the way I've always worked. And, and by squad was no different. I put the whole thing together. When Screen Factory did the Blu-ray, 
I offered them the script as an extra, and I actually photographed the whole script and put it all together, and then they didn't use it. They didn't put it in. I don't know why. I spent a lot of time putting it together. Really wanted to go back to the whole idea of you prepping for this, and especially all of the work that you did going out with uh, the actual Vice Squad. Is that kind of your typical thing, or did you just need to do that because you didn't like where the script was at when you got it? I'm a stickler for real, for reality, and I'm an ardent researcher. That's how Deathline came into being, was research. I used to ride the tube every day to get from... When I first moved to London, we were way outside of London because I couldn't find a flat. In London, we were out. We stayed in Hendon for a year while I was looking for a flat. So I used to ride the Northern Line in central London every day. And I just started exploring the tube, and I found the tube really interesting and realized it was the oldest underground railroad in, in the world. So I started researching it. And in my research is where I discovered all these abandoned tunnels and everything. So I talked to some people, and I wanted to go down and see them. And so I had walked these abandoned tunnels and looked at these abandoned tunnels and researched them and found out what had happened down there and why some of them were abandoned and about the cave-ins and accidents that had happened and the number of people that had died down there. And that's where the whole idea for Deathline came from. And opposed to that, whenever I've written anything or shot anything, really do a lot of research. And when I came into Vice Squad, I didn't know anything about police work. And I wanted to know. i got to tell you, police really love Vice Squad. It's like a favorite movie amongst cops because of the reality of it. What happens in that film is what really happens. And police love watching it. Of course, all the action that takes place in that movie is probably the amount of action that takes place in a policeman's entire career, not in one night. Um, for most cops, there's some cops that see a lot of action, especially guys that are working like organized crime narcotics and stuff like that. But that was one jam-packed night. <laughs> oh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm always a fan of one-night movies, and so that one is right up there. Yeah, I always wanted to do a real-time movie, and I've never really gotten to do that. I wrote something. In IMAX's early days, they talked about doing dramas in IMAX, which they never really did. They got involved in movies that were being shot for other venues that became IMAX movies, but there was a guy that was hired by IMAX to to develop dramatic stories. And that full length, like half hour long things, they could just be an amusement park ride. And so I wrote, I knew the guy and he, I had worked with him at Fox. And so anyways, he asked me to do it and I wrote a Basically, a story that was a car chase. It was like a miniature vice squad taken down, I think it was a half hour or 45 minutes. And we shot all kinds of experiments on it, and it was quite fun. But at the time, it never happened. 
IMAX never actually funded anything other than the research. Yeah, I think you mentioned on the commentary when it comes to cars and the car chases that you didn't have doubles of the cars. You just had the one car. So if you crashed it, it was crashed. Yeah, we didn't have doubles on all the cars. We had doubles on some of the cars. But the main one was the van because we only had one of the vans because you know scored to rip the top off and all of that. So had that shot not worked, we would have been back there three days later with another van. It's, I can't remember if we had a double on the Cadillac or not, but probably not. Budgets <laughs> were a lot tighter back then than they are today. And any place that you could save money, you would save money. Vice Squad was done on a shoestring comparatively. If you made Vice Squad today, I think Vice Squad would cost at least $15 million today, and that would be low budget. We made Vice Squad for, I think it was $2.3 million, and that was paying everybody. And of course, half of that went to me. <laughs> I wish. I got paid pretty well on that movie for 1980. <laughs> but I guess $2.3 million would be comparable to what? Five, six million dollars today. The same year that Vice Squad came out, you had another movie come out called The Mysterious Two. Which was shot first and how did Mysterious Two come about? Oh no, The Mysterious Two was shot years before. Um, yeah, I shot Mysterious Two in 78 and it was a pilot. As we were putting it together for NBC, began as a pilot. And then Fred Silverman decided to turn it into a big event by casting it all. Every speaking part in it was cast with somebody who was in another NBC television show. It had a feeling to it that was because of the pilot. We weren't making it as a movie. We were making it mainly as a pilot. And it had this eeriness to it. That, and that as Fred left... NBC and other people took over and and they were putting together of this project and the putting together of it as a pilot that executives flow through networks <laughs> like blood through veins just keeps moving anyways it kept getting changed and getting talked about and whether it was going to be a pilot and then they decided they didn't want it as a pilot and it was so they just going to put it out as a movie. So it was like it just sat on a shelf for three years until it finally went out. And they just stuck it into a time slot and put it out there. Oh, okay. So just coincidence that it came out the same year. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was supposed to be a pilot done for the 78 season. Then it got a resurgence because of the fact that the people that I based that script on, which I had done from a newspaper article, and then they had disappeared. People thought they had, when we made the film, they thought those people had disappeared. And then they reemerged in San Diego and they did that big uh, mass suicide, Heaven's Gate, they called themselves. And they did this big mass suicide in, in San Diego that was in all the headlines and everything. And Suddenly, everybody would look at it. Boy, you did that. You made that movie before it actually happened. And it was the same two people. These people that called themselves he and she. 
But yeah, I did a <laughs> shitload of interviews about. I did Mysterious 2, and Robert England's in Mysterious 2. I had met Robert casting something, and I just thought he was an amazing actor. And when we were casting Mysterious 2, I brought him in for that part. He was the only non-television star almost in that whole film, and I had a fight to have him in there, but I just thought he was an amazing actor. He did a great job in Mysterious 2. And so we had just finished Mysterious 2, and we, and Ronnie Shusette got Alien opened and was a big hit. So we got greenlit on Dead and Buried, which we had been working on for a while to get it off the ground. I called Robert, and I said, I want you available. And I gave him the dates, and he said, yeah. I said, I'm going to write you a part. And so I actually, Ron and I wrote in the tow truck driver part, which was not, which was just like a little before, because it was the only, I thought he'd be just great. I just saw him sitting there with the airplane, <laughs> the little toy airplane, <laughs> spinning the propeller, because he is such a presence, and I didn't know he was going to become Freddy, but I think, I think Dead and Buried had a lot to do with him becoming Freddy. Um, and Robert and I are still friends. I'm happy to say he, he refers to me as one of his pre-Freddy friends. <laughs> Everybody wanted to be friends with him after Freddy. I was friends with him before he became Freddy. <laughs> he and Nancy, I just love them. They're great people. His wife. I've been very lucky. I've met some amazing people, music people, film people especially music people. I've met a lot of music people, befriended a lot of music people, because I love music. To this day, Joe Renzetti, who scored most of my films, is still one of my closest friends. I'm busy, actually. I tried to retire three times. I've tried to retire three times. I've gone back to work. Right now, I have a pilot shooting for Discovery ID put my police training to good use. And I, I did first 48 missing persons, which I created. And so now I'm doing something with three of the detectives who I had in first 48. We're doing another reality show. We've just done a two-hour pilot. We're doing an eight-hour podcast. I'm working on some other stuff as well. I'm working on two books, which is really where I want to end up, just writing books production gets a little tedious and it's not as much fun today as it used to be the studios aren't as much fun and it's just not i'm spoiled i got to work with people like alan Ladd jr and jay Cantor and frankie blondes and robert ramey and who were really giants and really knew about filmmaking and you don't run across the same thing anymore.
think the last time we talked was six years ago when you were talking about King Cohen. And now we're back talking about Working Class Actor, a documentary about Wings Hauser. How did you get involved making a documentary about Wings Hauser? We have a sort of monthly movie night over at my producing partner, Matt Verboy's house. Because Matt's got the biggest screen of all of us. He's got like this big projection screen. And it's like almost going to a small multiplex theater. And we generally watch stuff for fun. We're not watching cinema. We're watching movies. And sometimes they're pretty sleazy and sometimes they're not. But they're usually fun because that's the whole point. So one of the movies we decided to watch was Vice Squad. Because a new Blu-ray had come out. Now... All of us had seen it except for one of our regular guys, a guy named Cy Boris, and he's one of the exec producers on Working Class Actor. And I think he knew Wings, but he had never seen Vice Squad, which was for Wings Hauser, the same coming out party that Die Hard was for Alan Rickman. Remember when you saw Die Hard for the first time and you said, who is this guy? We sort of had that with Wings Hauser as well. Now, I had seen the movie initially back in the day because it got a great review from the New York Times. And I'm going, man, if Vincent Canby, who was the A critic for the New York Times, says it's a good movie, I got to go see it. Now, I would see it anyway because I like genre stuff. So anyway, I knew who Wings was. I knew what Vice Squad was, but I hadn't. So we watched this really nice new Blu-ray and he went, this guy's great. And then COVID hit. So what happened was we decided... We can do what you and I are doing right now via Zoom. We can get together every Friday night. And so what we did is we were watching a Wings Hauser movie for homework, the same Wings Hauser movie. And then we'd get together on Friday nights and usually there'd be a little alcohol involved, but a lot of laughs. And this thing just kept going and going. And we started really working through Wings filmography and TV credits as well. And then about a year into it, because this started at the beginning of COVID, Sai's wife said he should know about this, that there are these, these, I don't know, idiots, you could say, but very enthusiastic idiots watching his movies every week. So she used to be in the casting business and knew a guy. It's like, I know a guy who knows a gal who knows a guy. And the friend of hers knew Wings' manager. And so we arranged for a conference call. Wings couldn't do Zoom. Wings is not, not, he's not as 21st century as we'd like him to be. But in any case, we did a conference call. He knew who we were or that we were reasonably intelligent fans, perhaps. And so he called up and we talked to him for about an hour or so and found him to be charming, delightful, fun. Great recall, great anecdotes. And by the end of the phone call, I'm thinking, I wonder if there's something with this guy. Because the trick to doing any kind of film like this, and this was true with Larry, is you need an interesting character for the audience to stay attached and involved and interested. And Wings had all of that. So after we were done talking to Wings, I talked to Matt. And Matt said, you think there's a movie in this guy? And I said, yeah, you and I were thinking the same thing. So we arranged to meet him in person at the Manhattan Beach Studios, which I guess was mutually inconvenient for all of us. And again, still heavy COVID protocols and all of this stuff. And what happened was we met in this 
area that was like an outdoor coffee place, but wasn't really being used at the time. We sat out there for about an hour and a half listening to Wings talk about his career and his life. And we got together afterwards and we said, yeah, I think this guy's worth doing a movie about. And sometimes I think with this kind of story and storytelling, the A-list guys, of course, are interesting. But I think it's guys who are not the obvious A-list guys sometimes can be more interesting. And the reason I say that is not because I'm doing the movie, but because I'm a fan and I don't like to do work on anything I don't really want to see. I think that's there's a certain cynicism, jaundice to that. I'm going to make it because I can sell it. No, I want to make it because I want to see it because it's too damn hard to make one of these things if you're not enthusiastic about the subject. And the thing is that Wings started in soaps. He worked in television. He worked in B-movies. He was a video store movie star. He was doing good parts in A pictures. And at that meeting, he said, I'm just a working class actor. And the second I heard that, I said, that's the title. But it's a potential story about what it's like to have this kind of career. And he was very candid with us about his dark side. He was very candid with us about his ups and downs. It's been a bumpy road for him to have a long career, but it was an interesting road. And so that's what, how we got started. That's that epic answer to your very simple question. <laughs> I like epic answers. It's really okay. Now, you've talked to me before. You know I can go on and on. <laughs> so when did you actually have that meeting and decide, okay, we, we want to make this documentary? We went out and had pizza literally right after that meeting in manhattan beach we again it was covid was starting to go downward but it was still covid so we ate outside and we and we're just going yeah this i had other ideas for things to do but we felt that this would be very doable all the obvious producing reasons and stuff like that but he was an interesting guy i was very intrigued by him the more I talked to him, the more I wanted to talk to him about himself. He's a fascinating guy. There's a niche for this kind of storytelling because, as I said before, yeah, you see a documentary on one of the cable channels for a major star or a major director, and you go, yeah, I want to see that. But oftentimes, the working class actors have as interesting or perhaps more interesting stories to tell. I'm not saying that this movie is going to be more interesting than any A-list biography, but it's going to be interesting because he's interesting. What do you even decide this is the path we're going to take? Do you start to write down, okay, these are the movies, these are the people that we can talk to? What's your method of putting together a project like this? It all starts with the star. His dad was a screenwriter, and his dad took the family out to a place called Thousand Oaks, which is about 30 minutes west of the famous San Fernando Valley. In fact, Thousand Oaks back in the day was considered the boondocks, and a lot of movies and TV shows would go out there on location. And it's an interesting part of the world topographically. I just did a commentary for the Bridges of Toko re-recently and found out that Thousand Oaks was used as Korea the climactic sequence and i know that westerns were shot out there episodes of combat were shot out there i know that martin and lewis when they were on the road driving places sometimes they'd go out there so 
But Wing's dad moved the family out there and they built this theater. I think it's called the Thousand Oaks Theater or something like that. I'm sorry if I don't get it right. And because Wings had a family connection to this theater, which is still there today and still is putting on productions, he said, let me call him up. And so we shot his interviews there. And I loved having a theater as a set, having him on stage and looking into the background and just seeing what on the sides of a theater, but the audience never sees. And so it was a great set. It was a great piece of art direction or production design. And we went there, I think, three times, and I talked to him for hours. So since he said yes, and I knew we were going to do it, I literally sat down and I mapped out on paper a bunch of questions to create the spine. Now, as an interviewer, you have a question, but you got to listen sometimes because the follow-up can maybe get you even better stuff to talk about. And so. We spent a lot of time. I don't know how many hours. I know it was at least nine or 10. And so we got, I basically got the spine of the movie in these series of interviews. And then I shot footage of B roll footage of him walking around the theater. We also did some stuff where he was walking around the part of Thousand Oaks where he grew up. Lake Sherwood is, I think, uh, uh, that neighborhood. I'm sure this all doesn't mean anything to you. But it's, again, in that general area. I got some B-roll of him revisiting his home. I don't know exactly how I'm going to use it. That's the thing when you do a documentary. You don't start out with a script. Basically, the process of making a story like this is you just gather as much stuff as you can. And then you basically take an unfathomable amount of material. And then you got to really just narrow it down and make it into an efficient piece of storytelling. So that's how we're building this documentary. And then we've also looked through his filmography and everything. And I said, who can we talk to? And because of COVID, unlike with Larry, it's been a little tougher to get people to commit. We've got a bunch of people already, but I know as I continue to edit, my editor and I would probably have one of these moments and we had them on King Cohen, where you go, boy, it would be nice if we could talk to somebody like he did a just off the top of my head. I know he did a movie with uh, Shannon Tweed, who, if you're a B movie genre guy and a Playboy fan, you go, I know who Shannon Tweed is. And I think at some point I'm going to try and get her. We talked to Francis Fisher. We talked to Ernie Hudson, Alexandra Paul. Kathleen Kinmont, Dar- Darcy DeMoss. We've talked to uh, James Whitmore Jr. We talked to the guy who produced his soap, a guy named Ed Scott. Great guy, very nice guy, warm guy. It's, it's interesting as a sidebar to this, when you deal with people who are pros who've been in the business for a long time, there's almost one thread and they're pleasant, they're easy to deal with. And I know I'm forgetting some of the others, but, oh, Ed Zwick. We talked to Ed Zwick, who worked with Wings very early in the game. As we continue to build the story, we're going to need probably other people to participate. It's just, it's. I don't know if it's how everybody else does it. That's how I do it. And usually with King Cohen, we had most of the other people pre-done before we started to cut. I think this is going to continue to just expand and we're going to probably say, boy, it would be nice to get somebody who worked on this or somebody who can talk about that. You have the frame of the house, but 
how you put the bricks on is a very in the moment kind of thing. What was Wings's reaction when you told him you wanted to make a documentary about him? I think he was very surprised, but very pleasantly surprised. I think he was enormously flattered. I don't think he expected it. Maybe he had a hint of it when we had the second meeting. It was like with Larry. When I called Larry up and I said I wanted to do a documentary about you, he said, fine, great. I miss Larry giving me a hard time. You get up in the morning. I always say you get up in the morning, you never know what you're going to hear or learn or see. And I think sometimes somebody calls you up and says, hey, I want to do a documentary about your life. I think it knocks you a little sideways, and then you'd have to decide whether you want to do it. And Wings decided to do it, and he was enormously candid. Sometimes people want to do one of those things where you print the legend. Wings gave me stuff that was, some of it was very personal, I'll say that, surprisingly so to me. But he just said, if we're going to do it, let's do it which is great for someone like me, for any filmmaker like me, any storyteller. It's great when you have that. So where would you say that you are at in the production currently? We're in what I call the Sargasso Sea of Editing. There's a lot of throwing it against the wall to see if it sticks. And so we're in the middle of it. And I think that it takes a lot of work to make it look easy. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about everybody. When you're doing a regular feature with a script, you're doing fiction, you have the script as the spine. And then when you do documentaries, I started out doing DVD special features and stuff like that. And to do a good featurette on any movie, you're looking for anecdotes that are interesting, but you're not telling a story. You're telling, you're sharing interesting pieces of a production with Larry. I realized while well, I'm telling a story and the same ground rules apply, you have to have a kind of a beginning, a middle and an end. I, I think I may have told you when we talked last time, there was a ton of stuff that I had with Larry that was great that I couldn't use. Larry makes a remark at the end of the documentary where he says it should be a mini series that his life is so fascinating that he could have like a mini series about his life. And he's right. For example, he told me a story about working on Columbo. It was a great story. It might be in the extras on the Blu-ray, the King Cohen Blu-ray, but it was too long. The thing is, and this is, again, part of my, my, my mantra. I have two mantras when I edit. One is, just remember, everybody has a short attention span. And two, we'll figure it out. And Larry had a tendency to talk in a very lengthy way. Sentences weren't punchy and short. And sometimes if you try to tell a story and you can't tell the whole story, the story doesn't make sense. So that's what happens with a documentary that Wings is a little different. I think he understands the fact that he needs to get to the point. And the other thing that's happened with me as an interviewer is I'm pretty secure as an interviewer. And he'll start something. I'll say, start it over again. I need the subject of the question in your answer. And I just need you to just don't meander with it. Now that might sound like I'm being a dick, but I'm directing him and he likes to, he liked being directed because he knows that if I get good stuff, then it can be used. But a lot of times in the past, when I've interviewed people on film, I know the question 
the audience doesn't know the question. And sometimes, sometimes, not all the time, the question has to be a part of the answer. Wow, when I did that Hunter, I couldn't believe what it was like playing that guy. Just for as, as an example, by the way, he did an episode of Hunter playing a badass bounty hunter, and he's great. That's one of my favorite guest shots he did. But you have to have a context in the answer because the narrative in a documentary is different than a narrative in an episode of anything or a feature um, because you're changing the subject. It's a subject change. It's a gear shift. So these are the things that I'm always trying to think about. And to Wings's credit, he was terrific when it came to just set, regrouping a little bit. He would give me a hard time about it. But he's a fun guy. He was he had great humor and he'd stare me down and he'd do things like, oh, okay. He understood the process. He seems like a fascinating guy just from the roles that he's played over the years, just from some of the interviews that I've seen with him. I'm so excited to see your documentary just because I know it's going to be a great ride. Thanks. I appreciate that. I could have cut a documentary of just wings talking about himself with cutaways. First thing I learned in film school, I think they say, what are you going to cut to? Literally, when you're doing any kind of filmmaking, what are you going to cut to? It's not theater. And so he's just given me plenty of stuff. Like I said, I could have just cut away to stills or clips or montages of stuff. But I like other people to come in and maybe play point counterpoint. And I think other people's opinions of him or discussion of him or his work or his craft that just brings an extra dimensionality to it, which is what I try to do. I'm not saying I do it better than anybody. It's just, that's just how I do it. That's how I try and tell the story. And we did that with Larry, with King Cohen. There's that somewhat famous sequence where Larry and Fred Williamson seem like they're talking to each other. Miracle of editing, where Fred's saying, oh, Larry Cohen couldn't do this. Larry Cohen didn't do that. Oh, I did this. I did that. And Everybody really liked that. And that was one of the earliest sequences we did, and it was funny. And here's the other thing I've realized, and is you never cut funny. If something's funny, you got to go with it because the audience loves that. Coincidentally, when I talked to Ed Zwick, I had gone to a seminar, like an evening kind of thing, with him and Dick Wolf talking about television. And I never forgot this thing that Ed Zwick said. This is before he became a feature director. He was working on 30-something as the showrunner, writer-showrunner. He said, it can always be shorter and it can always be funnier, referring to anything, any kind of storytelling. And I never forgot that. And so if I see an opportunity for funny, I'm always going to go with it. You know, humor is something that in the 21st century, I'm not quite sure if people really appreciate the value of it. People like to laugh, but I just think that we're all very serious sometimes in our storytelling and the movies I grew up with and you grew up with. It didn't matter what genre it was, the memorable ones always had some humor to them. And Wings is a guy where I think that's just baked in. I'll find the funny. I'm not making a comedy, but I'll find the funny. What are some of the most surprising things you've learned so far about Wings? The most surprising thing I learned about him was that he was his own worst enemy at times. One of the things just it's important for me to say is that We've watched almost everything he's done. Some of it is so obscure, hard to find that we have, but we've watched easily 90, 95% of his stuff. 
the good, the bad, and the very ugly. But the one thing, the one piece of connective tissue has been Wings is always good. Wings shows up. He's always there. He's ready to play ball. And he literally has said that because he started out wanting to be an athlete. He wanted to play football. And he did play college ball, but I think he banged up his knee. But he really couldn't play pro ball. I think he also wanted to play baseball, but he liked football best. And when he talks about acting, he talks about it in sports metaphor. He says, I want to be on the field. I love to play. And I think that in spite of all of his personal stuff, when he's on a set, he wants to play. He goes to the camera every day and he just taps the camera a little bit, gives it like a little caress, says good morning, because the camera is his friend. The camera is an actor's friend. He had some dark stuff. He had a lot of dark stuff. And he has been married multiple times. He had some substance issues here and there. But he always managed, I never saw like a dip in the quality of the work. That was what was really interesting to me because we've seen so much of it that I know when things weren't going well or when he would, the road was a little bumpy, but you look at the work, he's still really good. So that was a surprise. And I think the other surprise I had, that's, it's not a real big surprise, especially after the initial meetings is, God, he loves to act. He loves to work. I think. I'd like to believe that all actors who do it because they really love it. And it's something that's important to them. My previous lifetime, I used to work in the comic book business. I was a comic book anchor for a long time working for DC and Marvel and a lot of other folks. And all I know is when it wasn't fun, it was the hardest work in the world. When I wasn't having fun with it, and people use the fun word a lot. I hear baseball players say, well, we're having fun out there. Well, of course you're having fun out there because you're being paid a zillion dollars. But I think at its core, if you take everything away, especially in the entertainment business, you do it because it's enjoyable. I took some acting classes at one point, and I remember doing a scene, and I said, okay, now I get it. When you nail something, there is this rush to it. It's almost a narcotic kind of effect. And I go, that's why they do it. The money is there because you got to make a living. But that's why they do it, that there's a joy in acting. And I think the thing that continues to impress me is that Wings has a great joy about his work. And he has a great joy in his craft. And I like that. I like when I was working in comics and when I do commentaries and I do interviews, and I've done a lot of interviews on commentary tracks. I'm always fascinated with the professional side of somebody. I think, I don't know if anybody sets out to become an artist, whatever their discipline is, but I think everybody sets out to become a pro. I want to be good enough at this so that I can make a living doing something I really like. Because as you probably know, and your listeners know, that if you really like what you do, it's not work. No long days. Listen, doing the kind of work that I do, you can have long, long days and you're exhausted, but I never go, I hate it. And when you nail something, I remember seeing this years ago, Jerry Goldsmith did something for the LA Times where he was being interviewed. God love Jerry's my favorite composer of all time. It wasn't a great interview. I think he was uncomfortable with talking about himself. If I could have done a documentary about Jerry Goldsmith, I would have, but I don't know how good Jerry would have been. 
but Jerry has this thing. He says, and when you nail it, that's it. I think one of the things that Wings always looks for is to try and nail it. It's, it's important to him. The craft is as important as the joy of doing it. And so that was surprising. I try not to be overly judgmental when I do this kind of work and when I'm interviewing people. I'm the least important component when, when I'm getting all the raw material. And I made a couple of big mistakes very early on when I was doing some film journalism where I knew the answer to something, so I didn't ask the question. I was interviewing Stephen Cannell. This is 100 years ago, and I was really young, and I didn't know what I was doing. Some people might say, I still don't know what I'm doing. But I'm talking to Stephen Cannell, and I don't ask him why The Rockford Files was canceled. Because I read it in TV Guide. But my editor said to me, he says, well, why don't you ask him why The Rockford Files was canceled? Because you had him. You could have had his take. And I said, I guess I thought everybody knows the answer. And he says, never, ever assume that everybody knows the answer. That was a screw-up on my part. It was still a pretty good interview, but it was a screw-up on my part. But And I realized, so I've got to ask all these questions. I may know answers to, but I want to hear what he has to say because there are people who don't know the answers. Okay. It's an interesting dance, I think. If people aren't familiar with Wingshauser, God help them for listening to this interview, but where would you have them start? What are some of your favorite performances of his? Vice Squad, of course, you know, it's literally a who the hell is this guy kind of entrance. I mentioned this. He did a Hunter episode where he plays this bounty hunter. I, that's one of my favorite guest shots. I really like his work on The Insider. He played a racist cop in Tales from the Hood, and it's a really good piece of work. And he said after he did that, he wasn't going to do that kind of part anymore. He couldn't do it. He couldn't. His insides just rebelled at doing that. But I, I don't know. I think maybe one of the great, his, I think his greatest performance is Tough Guys Don't Dance. The movie that was excoriated by the critics when it first came out, Norman Mailer wrote and directed it. It was really slammed sideways. And it's a strange movie. I think it's aged well. And I think I like it more now than I did when I saw it initially. But he is great. He gives a best supporting actor kind of Oscar-worthy performance in that. His genre stuff is interesting. He did this movie called The Art of Dying. The Art of Dying was this very Hollywood Boulevard-esque cop movie. Wings and Hollywood Boulevard have this interesting synergy. And that we're going to touch on that in the movie. But I think he directed that one. And he's just really charming, and he's just got that kind of easy, affable, leading man kind of quality, and that's just fun to watch. It's like saying, what's your favorite Jerry Goldsmith score? It's like saying, what's your favorite Beatles song? It's hard to pick, but those are some that I would just steer somebody towards if they want it, like a quick primer. The best thing to do is to sometimes just go to the IMDb and look at stuff and see what might jump out at you. Wings did four four guest shots on Murder, She Wrote. Wings Hauser, working with Angela Lansbury. It just doesn't quite seem to connect. And he did four separate kind of performances. And he, he loved working on that show. He loved working with Angela, and he had such wonderful things to say about her. I think that's the other thing I appreciate about Wings. He has a certain amount of 
appreciation for people who do what he does. He has a lot of gratitude. I think he respects craft and talent, but every performance he gives is different yet the same because he's a star. star. He has a star persona. And yet there are movies, oddball movies like The Carpenter, where we're convinced he was in a movie of his own making. There's a movie as it was, and then there's his performance, and you just go, I just wonder if he said, I'm going to do it my way. Talked about it a little bit, and the answers are interesting. I don't want to give away the whole movie in this interview, this pregame interview. <clears throat> but look at the filmography and see what you can get your access to vice squad is everywhere it's that's the easiest one to access and i'll say one other thing that's interesting about vice squad is that the whole idea of a psychopathic cowboy white pimp in the real world of los angeles night crawlers let's say that just doesn't that doesn't exist that's not a real thing but yet you just go of course so you said you're in the midst of editing, are you pretty much done with the interview portion of things? Or are you still actively searching people down? Done with most of it. The whole point of the Kickstarter and the fundraiser is just to give us more funds to do more stuff. Yeah, I, again, one of the things that's interesting about doing this kind of work is you never know when you have enough. And I know that there are other people I'd like to talk about now that COVID is, COVID I think is resurfacing a little bit, but not to the point where everybody's going nuts. There's might be some people who are a little bit more comfortable with being interviewed. Mm-hmm. So there's more to get. I, like I said, I'm in the middle of it in terms of the editing and putting it all together, but there's always somebody else. Even with Larry, I, you know, there were two or three instances where I went, man, I wish I had called Tony Lobianco more. I think I called him a couple of times and he never got back to me. That's one of the lessons I learned be a pest sooner or later somebody might just go okay i'll talk to you just stop calling me so i learned that and then i wish i was able to talk to joel schumacher i had heard that he just wasn't doing any interviews and again it's one of those things where be a pest he was going through some personal stuff i think some controversy and i don't think he wanted to talk to anybody but I didn't care. All I want to do is what was it like making a movie from a Larry Cohen script with Larry Cohen on the set sometimes. And I didn't get that. And I wish I had. But for the most part, I don't have too many of those types of regrets. So as needed, I will talk to more people as I can as needed and as I can get them. Is there a good place for people to keep up with the documentary online? We have the kickstart and I think we do have pages but one of the things that gloriously i don't pay much attention to because i don't have to do it is this is the pushing of the project or the keeping people in the loop on the project my focus is the project mm-hmm. that's why i have partners and my partners matt verboys and dan mckeon are great partners to have because they just they they one point somebody said to me just let steve do what he's doing and they do what they do and i, I appreciate them every day those are good partners to have. Steve, I hope I can see the documentary sometime this year or early next, and would love to talk to you again about it once it's out there. I appreciate it, Mike. I would like everybody to see it soon, again, because the wheels do, in many ways, to COVID have are not as 
swift. I'm mixing my metaphors terribly. It's coming, hopefully sooner rather than later. And for anybody who's who wants to be a filmmaker, I'll give them one piece of advice. Don't be in a hurry. Don't take forever, but don't be in a hurry. You know, when we did King Cohen, and my mindset on this as well is, it'll be done when it's done. I don't want to dawdle, because sometimes you can second guess yourself. But don't be in a hurry. A lot of what we did with King Cohen, and we've done this to some degree with Wings, is we'll cut a sequence or work on a sequence. And you step away from it, and you feel, that was pretty good. And then I have a deal with my editor. If you don't think it's working, you tell me. We both have to sign off on it. And there have been times when we've just taken like a few days work and you throw it against the wall and it doesn't stick and you go back and do it. So don't be in a hurry. Allow chances, allow that to be part of the process as soon as we can, but I'm not going to rush it just to make it sooner. Sounds good. Steve, thank you so much for your time. It's always great talking with you. Yeah, likewise. I enjoyed it. Today was a good day to do it because it's raining cats and dogs outside. So I had It's a good day to be indoors talking to people about movies. There are tricks, chickens, chicken hawks, and main ladies, ditty bops, explorers, and johns. You can be on a fast track, a flatback, or a freak, a street date, part of a stable, an outlaw, or a lamp leaner. You can take a stroll, make a catch, or be the game. But on the street, the real trick is staying alive. Now, one motion picture tells the story as it's never been told before. Vice Squad, rated R, under 17, not a bit of an unfair. All right, we are back, and we are talking about Vice Squad. And I mentioned this earlier in the show, but this was really kicked off like a little subgenre of Vice movies. That a lot of them were written by some of the folks that were the writers credited for this, or produced by. But I know Robert Vincent O'Neill also penned, well, he penned Deadly Force, which you mentioned earlier, Brad, but he was the man behind Angel, which really has some similarities to this one. And then I also mentioned Hollywood Vice Squad, which was written by one of the other writers, Kenneth Peters, who was going by James Doherty or Doherty at the time. And that one, when I was watching Vice Squad a few months ago, I kept thinking, where's Carrie Fisher? Because I was getting these two movies mixed up. I haven't seen it. I've seen the trailer. It looks very different. I need to see it, though. What did you... I'm assuming both of you guys have seen it. What did you guys think of Hollywood Vice Squad? Is it worth checking out? I remember I liked it when I was young, but I haven't seen it since, like, probably junior high. It's been a long time. I don't remember if I've ever seen it all the way through. I was a huge Carrie Fisher fan growing up, and the cast it's a stacked stacked cast ronnie cox frank Corshin, evan c kim dirty harry's partner and also the main guy in uh, fistful of yen so there, there's some really good folks in here bo star henry hill's dad from goodfellas it's funny with angel is that i feel like, I like the angel movies i'm actually more partial to angel too because that one is just it's just nuts. It is just full. It's We're not even going to try to have any serious social commentary. We're just going to go fucking balls to the wall. It is so good. The first angel's good, but I feel like it doesn't, when they try to pull the seriousness, it doesn't land for me like it does in Vice Squad. I 
barely remember Angel. I remember watching at least one, if not all three. Actually, didn't there was a fourth one, but I don't know if it's necessarily part of the canon. Let's say they all have the same box cover, so you got to double check, like one you're getting from the video store it's always the back-to-back i'm going to school back-to-back time to hit the streets and really that whole thing of the secret hero-ness of it i'm I'm gonna i'm the nice school girl by day and then the prostitute by night it's we don't know what princess does but that whole dichotomy of the characters right there in that one it starts in in vice squad i think Funny to think of. I don't know if Carrie Fisher is undercover or doing any, something else. She might be. I probably should watch that movie again. Well, it helps that Vice Squad, like we mentioned earlier, they took a lot of time to really do their homework on it. Whereas a lot of the other ones, even some of the ones by the same producer, were made pretty quick. And usually you can tell. Deadly Force, you can tell. Because there is... The boom mic is in it as much as Wings Hauser is in it. And there's a shot there's a shot in it where they forgot to open the camera shutter all the way, so it is like hanging down over over Paul Shear. And I'm watching it going like well, at least Wings Hauser is still really good. <laughs> oh my god. Thank God for Wings Hausers. Yeah, and I I was thinking what other films would be like that's not necessarily totally connected to this movie but would be similar in terms of how i think a lot of people approach it it's, oh it's exploitation it's sleaze it's crime from this era and i was thinking like don't answer the phone but again if you compare this to it's a great it just shows you how great vice squad is because don't answer the phone if it wasn't for nicholas worth at least in my opinion it's like everything that's not him it's just almost feels like a tv movie of the week but not like one of the better ones it just feels like a tv movie of the week with just some with some cuss, some curse words and some nudity, but then Nicholas Worth gets on screen, and then it's oh, okay. Now we're cooking because he's fucking great, and he's. I wish there was like a cut of that film. It's just him. I tend to actually like forward to his scenes if I throw it on because I don't really love the movie, but I love him. He's amazing when he starts talking like the pimp. Speaking of the pimp, oh, he's like, motherfucker. <laughs> I, I should love it as much as I do, but I cannot help myself. But and it's just proof. Like, Vice Squad is just the real deal. And I can't really think of anything. I I wouldn't compare it to anything else just because it's... I don't think anything else is going to be as good in what it is. I remember telling my friends about the movie and what I would say that, probably because of the season Hubley connection, but I would usually say, oh, if you liked hardcore, you'd like this. You could, because of the connection of her playing a hooker in both movies they make a pretty good double feature with each other both different movies but that's the other one i would usually kind of say if i was like oh if you like this you'd like this or maybe the exterminator as well i definitely kept thinking of candy tangerine man while i was watching this movie because of the whole he's the nice dad and husband during the day and then he goes out and becomes the baron and there's even, all, that was actually where I learned about golden showers because there was one uh, customer who wants golden showers. Listen, this dude is a piss freak. I mean, his idea of an orgasm is getting watered down. Can I handle it? Well, $20,000 is a lot of money. 
get a couple of six packs. <laughs> I have that movie and I, st- I haven't watched it yet. I do have it. I need to watch it. Did you get the vinegar syndrome disc? Yes. Yes. It's in my pile. I still haven't watched that either because I've only seen that because we did that on the podcast years and years ago. And I was complaining so much because the movie practically looked like it was day for night for night. (laughs) It was so dark. It was purple. The movie was purple. It just looked terrible. I feel like we live in an era and it's awesome, but it's almost like you feel spoiled at this point because there's so many movies I've gotten really these great Blu-ray releases and restorations. But it wasn't that long ago to where you'd be watching some bootleg that looks like it was rescued from a latrine. And sometimes that really adds to a lot of times that really adds to it with some of them too. It's like, yeah, I want to watch this eighth generation copy of last house on dead end street. It's weird when it's 4k and I can see makeup on their face. <laughs> That's what I'm, I'm wondering. Cause I just picked up that grindhouse release of impulse, the uh, William Shatner film, and I only know that as like a beat to shit VHS bootleg. And I'm like, should I even watch this on any other format? Or is VHS the best way to see this movie? That might be it. Just, just to see how those day for night shots look in that film. Oh boy. I just wanted to see him biting at his pinky nail. But <laughs> I mean, I had the DVD of that. That DVD was taken from an eighth generation VHS. <laughs> I bought that DVD for a dollar at Big Lots. Oh, those are my favorite. I still have my my gray market DVD of pieces. And yeah, there are certain films that just look better with that grain. I'm sure Christopher Nolan would agree. Actually, going back to Harry Reams, I have a bootleg of a film. It's so good and it should be should get a restoration because it's really good. A Zebedee cult film called Sex Wish. Yeah, and like my copy of it, my, my late friend Scott was like, oh, this is great. Let's like it's in Smurf Vision. Because some of the colors are so oversaturated that it, like, at times, Zebedee Cole looks like he's blue while he's, like, talking like a demented baby while doing all this crazy shit. <laughs> so it makes it, but you're right. It does, like, weirdly enhance it where you're like, what? That is exactly the kind of thing I would buy. Like, just for the curiosity alone to see what this looks like with that kind of enhancement to it, like how they put out a 4K bat pussy. Which I own. <laughs> the worst porno movie ever made. And I'm like, I've got to see what that looks like with all of... <laughs> like, that's going on in the room in front of me right now. <laughs> you can hear the the crew burping and complete oh, Dolby. Yeah. <laughs> Falls off the bed and the lead actor breaks character to check on her. <laughs> you actually literally hear the sound of his penis crying because it can't get hard. I know. And- it's so sad. I love that no one knows who made that movie or who these people are, but there's clues within the film. Like you're watching a Zapruder film. You can pinpoint when it was made because of the opening when he's holding up a screw magazine and you can see the date. It's a hostage video. Proof of life. He was alive then. I love the fact that you invoked Bat Pussy. I'm usually the one that will bring up Bat Pussy randomly on shows. And yeah, Mike knows several times on the projection booth. And oh my god. Yeah, but what an age we live in where you're right. Like that. And actually, I'm even friends like the my friends Dennis Campa and his wife Melinda. They do the commentary track on that new release. They 
Yeah, they're like meticulously, like they're these exploitation experts. And I love that I know people that actually, because a joke between me and my husband, like we always joked about bad pussies, like whatever happened to it, it'd just be a shot of an overpass. <laughs> it's like these people have been buried. <laughs> it's like <laughs> in a, under, under a bridge or something. It's so grotty. But and it's I was always afraid I'd find out like these are my relatives or some shit because there's I sit there and I'm like me and my friends will just be like we'll, we'll quote the movie a lot because it is a very quotable film but like we, their improv action is game in that movie they're very good at fit into each other but like, we'll look at it and go okay I think this two might be an actual couple this might be a hooker. We're like trying to f- figure out what makes the most sense in our head about that movie. To loop this back, because this is what we do. I think Ramrod totally knows what happened to the couples <laughs> that made that. See, <laughs> oh shit! Oh my god! It explains everything. Mom and mom and dad didn't get along too well. <laughs> They uh, they they thought that this movie would help spice up their marriage. It did it did the opposite. Oh my god! Yeah, having to grow up hearing your parents go, "Darling, I love you, darling, I love you." And she's like, you don't love me, motherfucker. He does say the term "money maker" in the movie. I just I remember that getting brought up a few times in Bat Pussy. And he alludes to her that he's tired of her, you know, selling selling herself, and yeah, and I love. The total whiplash of this is a tremendous pussy when he does that to like, like just being mean about it. A w- worst a tub. A wa- oh, worst God, I forgot tub. about the worst. <laughs> That's how you know these are some true southerners because the letter R is in words. Yeah, that it should that not be like no worst business being there. No. <laughs> oh my God. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. He did eight years in prison. To the free world, man. For a crime he didn't commit. I robbed the old man's liquor store. All Bullet did was drive the car. Now, he's out to protect the only thing he has left. The only way he knows how. Bullet's back. Mickey Rourke. Tupac Shakur. Bullet. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Julian Temple's Bullet. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Brad and Heather. So, Heather, what's the latest with you, ma'am? I'm on a little show called The Noise Junkies, which is part of the Weirding Way Media Network, which so is Projection Booth. And this time around, HP and Father Malone and myself talk about some of our favorite and not-so-favorite cover songs. Spoiler alert, if anybody loves No Doubt's cover of Talk Talks, it's my life. You don't listen to this episode because you will hate me. But please check that out. Also, there's a brand new horror film magazine out called Cinema Macabre, created by Dennis Daniels. Dennis is a great writer, great guy. He is what I call an OG horror guy because he wrote for Gore Zone back in the 80s and so many magazines. He was an extra in Day of the Dead. And I have an article there about what I call 70s Dream Core, which is basically American horror films that were a little dreamy with nightmarishness inter- interspersed. And so films like Lamore Through the Looking Glass, Messiah of Evil. You can find that article in the first issue of Cinema Macabre, which is available on Amazon. And for anything else, I have a link tree 
So just go to linktree.com forward slash Mondo Heather and you'll find my website, my Patreon, my social media and all other sundry items. And Brad, how about yourself? Over on Channel Awesome, I just did a cinema snap episode on 1983 in film where I went through all the movies of 1983. I do that at every year to tie into 40 anniversary. So it's about a four and a half hour video. But if you don't have that, if you don't have that much time, I also have I've been doing a lot of double feature episodes, too, of stuff from 83. One of them that I'm about to release that should be out by the time this goes up is I just did a double feature episode on Deadly Force and the big score with Fred Williamson because they both practically had the same exact trailer (laughs) in in 1983. So I'll have some more of that coming up. I'm going to start 1962 in film and I still do the Cinema Snob every week. You can find me on Twitter at the Cinema Snob and Patreon.com slash the Cinema Snob. Our, and our archive site is thecinemasnob.com. Thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth or Heather, go ahead. Go uh, check out weirdingwaymedia.com. Everything's available there. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
still here? It's over. Go home. Go.